what's old is new again. Natural wine is being reduced to a style, to producers putting their wines into clear bottles so they could show off the colors. But that's not the kind of wine that, that moves me. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. On this episode, we bring together some of the smartest and most opinionated voices in the world of drinks. We welcome in John Bonet, Alice Firing, Jancis Robinson, and Talia Bayoki. John Bonet is an erudite observer of food and culture trends and the author of the monumental new book, The Two Volume, The New French Wine. Alice Firing is a journalist and celebrated wine writer, and she's also the author of many great wine books, including 2019's Natural Wine for the People, a prophetic look at the natural wine movement that has swept the drinking world away. Jancis Robinson is a legendary wine critic and the host of a pioneering wine show on the BBC. And last but not least, Talia Bayoki is the founding editor of Punch and the author of many books about food and drink. Tali is my personal go-to resource for all things drinking, as well as cooking, and you know what? I just love catching up with her. What a lineup. I hope you enjoy these conversations. John Bonet, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Matt, thanks so much. It's great to see you. I, I haven't seen you in a minute, and we're going to talk about Resi. We're going to talk about your new book. Uh, the new French wine. But first, I want to get a little bit into your background. You grew up um, in New York and Westchester. Uh, you know, what was food like in New York in the, in the 1980s? Great era. It was interesting in our house. I, um, my father was, had an interesting career. He both trained as a chef, uh, but was also uh, a businessman. He was a banker um, and worked at a bunch of Fortune 500 companies. But um, right at the beginning of the 80s, he actually um, quit his job at Citibank and started a gourmet foods and catering business. And so growing up, he was always cooking, like cooking mm. for real cooking. Um, and there was always wine at our house. And so we we started at a pretty high level. Uh, and I was, you know, but by the time he had started the business, I was probably not young, like old enough to legally work, but mm. uh, old enough to do whatever. You were stuffing some mushrooms on the weekends. I mean, sure. stuff like that. There, I I literally have a reaction to Styro peanuts because <laughs> um, there were a couple of years where he he had the contract to do the holiday gift baskets for IBM, yeah. and our entire basement was an ocean of packing peanuts. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's there you know so it was it was interesting and and one of the things to to your question about New York is he was one of the early folks to really work on sourcing of pretty serious stuff and like. There was that was the the early to mid eighties was the first time yeah. that you could get like real baguettes baked in New and York. Dean and Dean Deluca had kind of just opened around then, right? Well, in Soho? And, and there was a place called JP's that was actually oh. um, that was actually created by the um, the owner uh, of Le Bon Soup, and it was like cool. he brought o- he brought over a baker, I think. And so there was that. There was a place called New York Ice, which was the first place to do like really good sorbets. There was pasta and cheese, which eventually became mm-hmm. the Contadina packaged fresh mm-hmm. pasta. Uh, but so it was like get up at six in the morning on a Saturday. We'd drive, you know, into the city and pick up dry ice in the Bronx and go pick up all of his yeah. sundries. Uh, and, you know, he'd do catering gigs, whatever. So point being, like, 
we cooked for real at our house. Um, and so I, it was just always there for me. Same with wine. It was just always there for me. Uh, and you know, it just, I don't have this great story. It was just osmosis. No, the level of osmosis, I was gonna say the same term. And have you ever written about your father? It sounds like a character going from banking Gordon Gecko era to like quitting and then, you know, starting in this like new foodie culture and like working in it. I mean, it's really interesting. I, I, I have here and there. Yeah. He, he shows up a, a couple times quickly in the book. Um, Wonderful. In, in memory. But yeah, you know, um, that could be the next book. I know. I mean, I want to talk about your exposure to wine and, and really when did you first realize that wine had – so many layers and was just such a rich, rich text to write about. To write about, um, that's that's a good question. I mean, like I said, so wine was sort of there for me. Uh, growing up, I, you know, absorbed more than I really realized that I knew, especially when I got back to France and realized there were these places that I had visited as like a 13-year-old yeah. that I hadn't really thought about. But forgot all about it, went off, did did the internet, did journalism, mm-hmm. did lots of stuff. Uh, I got back into it in the early 2000s. I had moved to Seattle and was working for NBC and was like that was that was the era when Washington wine started to really come up in the world. Oh, cool. Like, before I had left New York, I started buying, you know, a little bit of Bordeaux, just random things, you know, dabbling as you do when you reach your late 20s and yeah. start get, thinking get a little you, bit you, of should scratch. A, you should be a grown-up. Yeah, get some scratch. Yeah. You, were, you were, like, covering the airline industry for NBC? Was that uh, right? I was covering all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I, I was the equivalent of their of, of MSNBC's page one editor. Uh, so, you know, you, you log on in the morning yeah. and what you see is, you know, what, what I started putting together at Internet homepages, like yeah. like really like a moment in the internet culture. I mean, you know, that was 15 million page views a day. So that was that was no BS. No BS. <laughs> and then and then just such a force in our in our in our media like cycle because it was pre-social media. So yeah. you had to go to that homepage. Exactly. It like told us something. Cool, cool background. Yeah. But back to wine, you know, tell me a little bit more about this Washington State. Yeah, wine. so 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 was there, started to get into it and you know, was going out and visiting all the wine regions and the wineries and everything was kind of going gangbusters and obviously started getting more interested in a broader range of wines as well. And slowly was kind of sneaking it into my stories more and more. So I, <laughs> by that point, I was like, I had I had moved off of kind of hard news desk into uh, business reporting, and was was covering the airlines, was covering travel, was starting to cover the food business a little bit, and was like, huh, like, I can write about some wine and wrote a few wine stories, kept sneaking it into other stories, um, did a like six month special report on methamphetamines. And, uh, weirdly where people were cooking meth out in the Yakima Valley was not far off from both the hop fields and the vineyards. Oh, no shit. So you were actually like catching, uh, catching some, some new releases while you were like interviewing these. I'm going to duck out and, you know, go taste this. Um, so, so finally I, I went to my editor and just, kind of suckered him into letting me write a wine column. And that's how it started. Wow. So the wine column at MSNBC, you parlayed that to working at the San Francisco Cron, right? You were you were the wine editor. You were the food editor as well. And, and you played, had many roles there. And that, and that, I'm sure, 
uh, informed the way your wine writing career kind of has blossomed into books and and everything you've done since. Yeah, it was. I mean, MSNBC was a great platform. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Chronicle reached out, and uh, it was weird. I ended up with two job offers, and that was the one I I mm. took. So who what was the other one for? Food and wine. Okay. So All right. What, what year? Could have had a uh, two thousand six. I mean, both have pros and cons. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, it was not an easy decision. My gosh. Um, so that's like the Ray Isle role. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it was ish. So lots of lots of stuff has sorry know, evolved. Sorry, listener. This is like real baseball yeah, shit. So <laughs> let's go back yeah. to John. welcome to welcome to the thrilling world of wine media. Wine media, uh, right? <laughs> but. So at the Chronicle, so yeah, I was the wine editor, chief wine critic, um, and co-edited the food and wine section for many years. Uh, and so it was it was sort of the other great platform that anyone could ask for, certainly if you're writing about wine. And and this was the genesis of my first book, which was the New California Wine, was being out there, being, let's just say, a skeptic about the state of California wine in the early 2000s, which was in a in my view, a low place, yeah. Uh, and, but was changing. And, and so I was really fortunate to be there at a time when what would become, quote-unquote, the new California wine. It's a catchy book title. It's a great title. <laughs> when you say in a low place, how does the film Sideways play into this, like, low point? Is, it like, is that, like, the lowest point? Sideways was, I don't even know if it was the lowest point because, <laughs> like, Sideways was Santa Barbara and Pino, and yeah. it was, like, a, it was meant to be kind of the the cowboys of, you know, of California wine Fair. versus everyone sitting in their, in their, you know, faux chateau in Napa. But it was just, it was stylistically, it was a point. I mean, what Sideways captured was this weird boomer relationship to wine. Yeah. And probably ultimately not a super healthy one. I think we can now say. Um, but, you know, it, yeah, it was, it was just like, everything was about sort of like, Big, impactful in 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 New California wine. I called it big flavor. Yeah, uh, it was just this more is more era. And to be fair, like this wasn't just California. And one of the things I do talk about in the New French wine is like Bordeaux in particular went through this. But there were a number of regions that um, that stylistically had this this strange evolution. Mm-hmm. I think we'll come back to like the weird relationship the millennials have with wine, and maybe our current day. We'll get to that uh, spoiler. We'll talk about natural wine, but I want to. Really really focus on the book, The New French Wine. It's two parts. It's big. Uh, it's just released re- like now, basically, when we're recording this, it'll be out for a few weeks. It's going to take a while for, I think, a lot of listeners to pick it up and, and really absorb it. It's one of those books it's that— literally going to take a while for them to pick it up. To literally pick it up, it's it'll like take— like nine pounds. It's like maybe like, yeah, like it has to be like set one of your workout because it really is heavy. But, I mean, I, I know some backstory just working here and we publish you— but I want to hear a little bit about how the idea started. And I know Emily Timberlake plays into a role, an editor, former editor at 10 Speed. But like, how did, where did it start and where did we end up? So, no surprise, it started uh, with probably a little too much wine. <laughs> um, so yeah, so Emily was my, um, was my editor on New California and she was at 10 Speed Press uh, in the East Bay in San Francisco. And... So New California was out and we were just sort of bouncing around trying to figure out like, what do I do next? I had this idea for a book called The New Old World and how like all of Europe was cool. uh, wow. was evolving in terms of its wine culture. Thank God I didn't do that considering what it <laughs> took just to get France out of the way. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we were we were at a wine bar in Oakland. We, you know, were one glasses, you know, uh, 
of, of Gamay, Too Far Gone. And she was like, hey, what about France? <laughs> and I was like, sure, that's a great idea. I love it. And <clears throat> it was that. And then, you know, put together the, the proposal and contract and all of it. And um, as as she has, has told it on, on the Internet, like, she's like, you'll be done in two years. Yeah. I mean, standard kind of, like, yeah, book writing a, cycle, like two years to write, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, a lot of work, obviously, but certainly not what it ended up being. Correct. Uh, yeah, so um, so it took a little longer. I mean, that was 2014. Oh, wow. When we signed the contract. Dang. Yeah. So we're like nine years, basically. About nine years. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Emily has written for Taste. Love Emily, and I just want her to write more. If you're listening to this, please pitch and let's talk. But, Emily, um, write more. I, I, love, I love her writing. She's just so wonderful. But um, what's the thesis of the book? I feel like it's hard to go over all of the book in this format in podcasts, because I want to get to your work at Resi as well. But um, what's the thesis? So the thesis is, it's basically the title of the first chapter, uh, which is um, which is patrimoine or everything old is new again. Mm-hmm. Patrimoine is this this very particular French term. It's not quite patrimony, which even in English doesn't have a great definition. It's not history, but it's the sense of, of kind of a, a shared cultural history. Mm. Um, and in France, it's, it's extraordinary, extraordinarily important because it, it indicates that it's not simply your history. It's not even, you know, just sort of your, your localized history, but it's a sense that whatever you're doing has its roots in a deeper culture. I mean, it's literally has roots. L- well, too. in the case of wine, yes, it yeah, literally, literally has roots. But so, but so when, when people talk about patrimony and wine, um, it is very much the sense of where you're growing this has had has had vines before for hundreds if not thousands of years. And so, you know, whatever you do is going to inevitably be seen in the context of what was there before. Uh, so the second part of the, the chapter title um, is, uh, is really, I mean, that's ultimately the thesis, which is that, you know, th- this is not, quote unquote, new, new land. This is this is not a new place for wine. And yet in every single part of the country, like in every single wine region, there is complete change, if not outright like revolution in terms of styles, in terms of mm. the way that the wine culture has evolved, in terms of the way that the wines are perceived, in terms of the farming, in terms of climate change, yeah. in terms of the the politics behind it. And so this this is what I wish someone had told me over the the, the <laughs> unsulfured gamay back in Oakland, which is like, you, you think you know, but mm-hmm. you don't know. It's like, um, I'm peeling an onion. I mean, let me ask you, you, so many topics you bring up, you said agriculture, I hear um, socioeconomics, you, t- you talk about the zeitgeist, you talk about media. I mean, this is all the ways that the French wine has changed. Or is there a way to say that French wine has gotten better? Is that is that even possible in this, con- in this conversation? I mean, I mean, yes, and that's easy, but that doesn't even really capture it. It's that it has transformed. Interesting. And so, again, and it's not, it's not like, Oh, stylistically, people do blah, blah, blah now. Or, oh, there's natural wine. Or, you know, now, like, there's less oak, whatever it is. Like, the cultural transformations that have happened, and they're not uniform. Uh, They really vary within each region, have radically transformed France uh, or French wine in the past 25 years. But the thing to also acknowledge, and I did not want to write 
a deep cultural history, but I needed to to tap into this to some extent is France has also changed enormously in the past quarter century. Yeah. I mean, and we talk about socioeconomics and politics there too. I mean, so I'm walking into Omnivore, I'm walking into Books Are Magic, I'm walking into Powell's and I'm looking at your book and I see, it's not a book, it's a case. So there's two volumes here. Shining in the, you know, in its, in its radiant blue. <laughs> I mean, and let's, let's shout out Lizzie too, yeah. uh, the designer who, who actually designed Food IQ, the book I worked on with Dan Holzman. Um, as Lizzie a, Allen, amazing, yeah. amazing book designer. Lizzie Allen, amazing work and, 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 and kind of harnessing all of this, this great shit. But like, tell us when you're walking in, you're seeing these two volumes. What are these two volumes? So the two volumes, the first volume is the narrative, literally on the spine, the narrative. The second volume is the producers, uh, hopefully self-evident. Uh, the narrative oh. is the story of everything mm. that's happened, uh, both an omnibus story, um, and there's a chapter on every single region, and then there's a fair number of interstitial chapters where there's one, the new farming, the new climate. There is one on natural wine. Uh, there is one somewhat esoterically, but not so much when you get through the whole book, uh, on a guy named Jules Chauvet, who a lot of people see as the father of natural wine, uh, and the difference between myth and reality. And that's actually a, a light uh, a light motif that comes back a lot in the book, which, again, to my point, it's not just French wine, it's France in general, that where France is in 2023 is so radically different from the myth of France and French wine that I think both the French and everyone else has built up. Okay. So you're saying the narrative starts that in, in 2013. The narrative, I'm trying to think, I mean, the narrative probably technically starts in like 2016, okay. but, uh, but I mean, it's, it's not meant to even drop a pin, uh, you know, uh, in a timeline, but it's more looking at how, let's go back to at least the nineties mm -hmm. and coming forward to today, there is so much that has changed across French culture, including wine, that you can't, you know, the, the, the way I, I talk about it a number of times in the book is the way that we the ways that we try to access the French yeah. myth, the, the myth of Provence, the the myth of kind of the you know tooling through the countryside with the plane trees on the side of the road on your yeah. little bicycle. I mean, Provence is yeah. like is like the Tuscany. It's like the what we see in Hollywood, right? When it comes to many parts of France, outside of Paris, of course. And, and it's I mean, you know, it, it has been well exploited by many writers of fiction and nonfiction uh, for a long time. To say nothing of art. Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you know, certainly within within gastronomy, Provence has this this mythic quality that a is sort of not true anymore. Uh, and you know, there's, um, I mean, I think that literally the. I'm going to take a little bit of pride in this line. I'm Great. not going to lie. Uh, in the Provence chapter was a million lavender sachets in a million tiny houses. A beautiful, beautiful line. Yeah. And but it's we, just, and, you know, like you have your L'Occitane, like you're you're all up in it. But it's, A, that's just not where Provence is. And to your point about socioeconomics, mm -hmm. like you look at Nice and you look at Marseille and that's not, you know, Provence yeah. is not in that place anymore. But B, like it's, it is this myth, again, like, somewhat out of the, like, the boomer era, somewhat out of, like, Chez Panisse and, uh, and uh, you know, Richard only, although Richard's actually cantankerous enough that he probably had <laughs> fewer scales over his eyes than anyone else. Mm -hmm. But you think about, like, if you ever read the book Provence 1970, yeah. this... this uh, Lucas Barr? Yeah, right, this, yeah. This, this coming together of, you know, of culinary greats in Provence. Like, there was this thing with just... 
defined in many ways the ways that uh, the, the way that Americans and, and frankly, the rest of the world saw France, not just Provence, but in general, which is I'm not going to say none of it is true because the culture of France is extraordinary, but it's just it's a very different country. And we still, you know, e- even like friends who are going to Paris still have this thing of like, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, sit in a cafe and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, this is it's like saying you're going to go to New York and you're going to only eat at like Katz's. Yeah. Which, love Katz's, but that's it's definitely you know, my top five. To, yeah. If I'm going to recommend it's going to be like, like definitely yeah, there. but you're like going to Times Square and going to Katz's is yeah. not actually no. what New York is. And our today. listeners, too, I think relate to that. Maybe like some people will literally go to Times Square and Katz's. But I think our listeners are more sophisticated in that sense. Um, but you, you mentioned, you know, Pat- you're going to Bushwick, you know, you're everyone going, listening. Yeah, you're going to Bushwick. You're going to a James Murphy owned establishment and likely a James Murphy concert. Uh, which is good or bad, depending on your age. Um, you bring up Paris, we, we, We've just said too much about both of us. We really have. Um, I, I think our listeners know where I stand on that. Let's talk about Paris. You, you live there part of the year, right? I mean, you have like, real roots there, and it, you, you, you bring up Provence, and, and it makes a lot of sense because it really is, especially in this narrative of wine, really informs the way we think about France um, as consumers of French things and Francophiles. But Paris, on the other hand, um, it's always hard for me to understand if it's like hot or not. <laughs> it's like, I feel Paris is always up or down. Paris stands outside of the realm of fashion. It's so true. It's, it's, I it's, love that you answered it I very mean, quickly. I, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just, I'm pulling out all the cliches today. I mean, yeah. we will always in fact have Paris. Yeah. And, and to be, to be, to be clear, when you are thinking about making a real, a real estate purchase there, <laughs> you start to think about like, is this going to be somewhere that's suddenly, um, kind of a hot mess in five or 10 or whatever years. And the thing is, it doesn't matter. It's Paris people yeah. like, you know, I, I, I am sure there is something, but I cannot imagine what there is that would make it any less of a global destination. I guess my point I was trying to make was that in terms of wine, I feel like Paris became like everyone went to Vervolet and Canal Saint Martin and like had some bomb wines and like meaning everyone like non-French people and like tourists. Yeah. And I felt like wine in in Paris and gastronomy in Paris in the past decade while you're writing this book has certainly seen some highs, but also there's always people snarking that it's done. I just like to get your sense. I mean, yeah, I love that face you made. It's so great. <laughs> I, and this is not straw man. I feel like I actually have people tell me this shit. I I mean, so there's I don't want to say there are two Paris's. Please, but, there but, are but, but there's at there, there's at least two Paris's. The thing is that in a way, and again, this was important for me to talk about in the book, and and I did, um, uh, coming actually out of a, an article I did for Punch, um, few I don't know, whenever that was, somewhere yeah. in the misty it, past. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, classical French gastronomy as it exists, the the Etoile, the you know, the Michelin starred restaurants, mm-hmm. and all that fancy stuff in the first, uh, yeah. and white tablecloths, et cetera, et cetera. That's pretty done. I mean, I, I don't even I don't even know how to get my head around it anymore. It's just it is this weird uh, vestige, mm-hmm. this, this vestigial remnant of the old understanding of France and not even not even really like a timeless one, but just this thing that very much came out of came out of maybe pre-war to post-war France, where this was very much viewed as the quote-unquote pinnacle of mm-hmm. uh, of 
of gastronomy. I mean, maybe it was like in like the early 2000s, like Cote Bosque and like these old school New York. Yeah, I mean, early 2000s, like let's talk 1980s, I 1990s. You're right, uh, probably more than yeah. 80s and 90s. But 80s. so, you know, those those are, I mean, vestigial is actually probably the right word in the sense that like they're still there. They still exist in their own universe and they they compete in their own little world. Mm-hmm. But, but, and this isn't even new anymore, but, Paris has so moved on to what the French call bistronomy, yeah. but essentially where you're doing great cooking, multiple influences in what usually is kind of a small storefront bistro. And that has been transformative to Paris in the sense that you you find the best cooking in Paris and some of the best cooking in the world in these in these little 30-seat restaurants. And so that's why it's like, well, Paris can't be done. It's like Paris in the sense of I'm going to go to the first or, you know, and go to Le Doyen, mm-hmm. whatever. Like, you have fun with that. But to your point of Verbalet, it's now almost a full generation that, you know, travelers under 60 have been going to East Paris and exploring this this very 21st century view of what French cooking is. Which, you know, bistronomy movement, um, absolutely exciting. To be clear, there's never a bad time hanging out in Paris for the food. I mean, like, let's get real. I just think that there was, like, a larger narrative maybe trying to snipe, and, John, you've, you've really articulated it. I want to move on to broader wine questions. Um, we've had some great folks on. We've had Jancis Robinson, Alice Firing, Talia Baioki, Jordan Michaelman, Andre Mack, like really great. And now you, and I, I feel like I've just learned so much from all these wine professionals and, and writers. I've asked them all essentially this question. Walking into a bottle shop, what should we be excited about as like a general wine consumer? Well, this assumes that this is a good bottle shop and it's not like, as it is in New York State, you're going to pick up a bottle of Smirnoff uh, at the local quote-unquote bottle shop. Great ground rules. This yeah. is a reputable yeah. place that you are very comfortable buying yeah. wines there. So I think the big thing for me would be the diversity. And, you know, France, California, Austria, Georgia, wherever, doesn't even matter. Um, some of it is just the the types of wine, the styles of wine, the places that they come from, the fact that there is ambient quality from all of all of these places and there's people doing different things. My my analogy back when I was at the Chronicle was like wine was moving in closer to the craft beer realm where like, you know, it can be it can be freeform jazz. It's it doesn't have to be we do one thing, same thing every year, same, you know, one one vintage, blah, blah, blah. So like even 10 years ago, what's available now and considered canon and, you know, when I was writing for Punch, we talked about this a lot. We called it the new mainstream Mm -hmm. just didn't exist. So I think just the sheer diversity of what's there um, with that comes the quality of what's there, which is to say, and and just to use France as a prism, if you look at the at the wines that are of extraordinary quality now that we didn't think of that way 10 or 15 years ago, meaning Muscadet, mm. where there's now 10 crews uh, of Muscadet. You could talk about single, single kind of villages. They're not quite villages, but, uh, you know, the different terroirs of Muscadet, it drinks like Great Chablis. Mm. Drinks, you know, it's not like cheap oyster wine, which is what it was a decade, 15 years ago. Beaujolais, same thing. It's basically the new Burgundy now that nobody can actually afford Burgundy. And that's like, an economic choice, and it's, it's, it's we've all benefited from... Enormously. These, these producers have actually gotten their shit together, and, and the 
the wines are great in some of these regions and, that yeah and so you you think about like you you went into you went to a wine shop 20 years ago you wanted Beaujolais like maybe there was some Deboeuf maybe there was mm. you know the nouveau releases of, I guess everyone was into that right. stuff in November and, and so you look at the way that like completely got thrown out the window and now people are talking about specificity single parcels mm. uh, the extraordinary quality of producers they're talking about Beaujolais Beaujolais the way that people talked about Burgundy in the 80s and why do we see Morgan everywhere I feel like I'm, I'm like an Instagram I've been That's drinking a, Morgan when I used to drink back in the day but man but why uh, if you want to know the reason that the the Jules Chauvet chapter is in the book, uh, <laughs> that helps to explain it. Um, you know, it's it's where you know a number of pioneers in Beaujolais who really a created a quality change there, but b also were some of the progenitors of natural wine yeah. came from. So yeah, it's it's everywhere. But so it's you know it's it, not even France. Like you know, you could look at in Galicia, you could yeah. look at Verdicchio from the Marque uh, or Austria, like. You can look at the way that we talk about champagne today in terms of individual vigneron and individual villages and sites. We didn't have these conversations 10 years ago. Even even champagne 10 years ago, like you were lucky if people were talking about grower champagne and maybe there was mm-hmm. – you, you knew Cedric Bouchard and you knew that he had a few different parcels. And, and grower means you just know where you, – you actually know. It, it's, it's, it's someone who's – Growing the grapes and making the wine yeah. versus, let's say, Dom Perignon, where they're buying a ton of grapes yeah, and come from and, many pl- different and crafting it. All right. Well, I mean, not bad product. I love John. This is so great to see your face because <laughs> I'm like, so, you, I mean, what you don't get. I'm with the so out of the game, and I'm uh, just like, Dom's drinks well, and you just like, I mean, absolutely. You know, Dom me. is a, a perfectly decent commercial champagne. Uh, whether you think it is at the level that it is marketed at, I. I leave it's I'm I'm throwing taste as the beholder, you know, in the eye of the beholder. I, what I love about your writing, like you will go Lester Bangs and then you will go John Pirelli's. Like you'll you're go both ways. Like you I love it so much. You like will be you'll burn shit down, but then you're very, very and yet, kind and even <laughs> yeah. like John. <laughs> Sorry. Music references. You mentioned uh you, you hint at the word natural wine when we talk about Morgan and and I just uh Talia and I talked about this. I'll link to this in the show notes. Great conversation with her about it. Um we could certainly have a long conversation, but why are we so obsessed with this this phrase, this 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 terminology of natural wine? I wish I knew, to be honest. I mean, it took a long, long time to figure out where natural wine should show up in this book. And it shows up all over because I, at this point, have visited more, quote-unquote, natural producers than most people have. Mm-hmm. Um, never with the intent of, I'm going to go write a book about natural wine or whatever, and I would get a question every single time, like, oh, your book's going to be about Van Natura. It's like, well, eh, not entirely. But where I landed was in trying to find an analogy, and I went through many of them. I went through many of them with Talia, trying to find uh, trying to find where my head was at. And uh, the, the analogy that's in the book, and I'm truly going to shorthand this um, because everyone should go read it in the book, clearly. Yeah, no doubt. Um, no, is, for real. You should pick up the book. Yeah. <laughs> no, like for real, like you hear John talk like this. He's an incredible writer. Not boring. It's not bo- not not boring. So just to break in. Which is good. They may they, they, they may think it's boring after the analogy I'm about. To OK, great. Out. But finish it. <laughs> uh, but my analogy was was really to the birth of modern art and the Salon de Refusé in 1863. And this was, you know, there was the Academy and there was the Refusé and the Refusé mm-hmm. were not not admitted by the jury to the official Paris Salon. So they, Napoleon III, the third, 
allowed them to have their own off salon, which everyone thought would sort of, you know, mock and humiliate them. Kind of in the bushwick of Paris at the time, like kind of like off, Actually, off the grid. Well, that's what I thought. But as it turned out, they were basically in the same place. Oh, wow. It was like, you know, you could go to like, mm. you know, you could go to the official wing or you could go to like. It was like know, Freeze and it was like a pop up at yeah. like the off off the corner of Freeze, but still in right. Yeah. Good spot. So it's I mean, and it's it's funny because now like so much of the art world has modeled itself in yeah. a way after that. Yeah. But the analogy being that this was this was this was the the establishment trying to cast out something that was different which of course i mean and i asked the question in the book well who won you're like well if you look at the trajectory of modern art um manet uh van gogh monet picasso on straight through to to richter and everyone else today uh you know it's safe to say that progress won, and uh, William Adolphe Bougereau, mm. uh, who was sort of the great academy painter, with Fregonard. his, you know, with his, well, yeah, with the the nymph orgies and everything yeah. else, like, you know, they they faded away into obscurity because taste evolved. Yeah, and so I think natural wine is simply a very belated response to people seeing the need to move beyond the traditional. Just going to give you a little applause there because it's it's as close as it's gotten for me. So thank you. That was really smart. And it, it makes sense. And I'm hearing, you know, it's not a movement. It's not a moment. It's it's just the future that wine in, is made. In, in its way, I, I would say that the elements of natural wine are the future. People now understand so much more about asking questions about viticulture and farming. They under they ask they know more about asking questions, yeah. sometimes the wrong questions, um, like, you know, why is there sulfur in this wine? Mm. L- let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the fact that people are now asking questions about this in the way that, again, maybe, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, or if that, people were starting to do about food and, you know, farm to table came up, all of this. But the fact that there is now this sense of expectation to understand all the steps of wine, where it comes from, that is what natural to me has brought. Yeah, just like transparency and education and asking the right questions. Yeah. So which is, I mean, which is hilarious now when, you know, you go and you see, oh, we have a wine list full of natural wines. I'm like, but, but do you? Yeah. And and not even like, because I'm like, well, that's conventional, that's conventional, but just like, you know, like what, what, what's the thought process? What, you know, when, and, and I get it, you know, this is, um, as everything in, in gastronomy is cursed to do, like it goes from good idea to marketing term yeah. in about three years. Uh, but, um, but it's, you know, even if people have a very fuzzy and often bad understanding, mm-hmm. I think that they're, what is going to come out of it is this remarkable growth and maturing mm-hmm. of, of the wine industry. Yet the salad composé has not taken off and it is quite the beautiful idea we'll get to that at the end but i have a few more wine questions because you're here and i just want to know in general how can we be better wine drinkers how can we be and better meaning drinking better but also just better citizens sure um by the way there, there were about you know a thousand people that logged off the moment you said salad composé so. i know salad composé <laughs> and linking to that in the show notes i know <laughs> right it's it's really the book the salad composé book will come we'll, out we'll, we'll get there we'll yeah, get there but, my next but, project but yeah the, um, the better wine drinking being a better talking. wine drinker i mean i i actually don't think it's hard um you know there's a million pieces of advice about you know take this class study this book 
Great book called The New Wine Rules. Highly yeah. recommend. Um, tells you everything you need to know. Uh, Wonderful book. Yeah. But <laughs> it's it's really, and it's, it, you can put it in your, put it in your backpack yeah. and not like feel like you're doing like a Steermaster. Yeah. Um, you know, well, versus the versus the new book. versus the new, of course, um, I'm saying versus the yeah. new book, which is a bit of a, a doorstop in yeah. the best way. But um, but but really, what it comes down to is being curious and being a curious consumer. And I I suspect that that sounds trite, but it's just it's like, you know, try to understand specifics, interrogate yourself, ask why you drink the things that you yeah. have drunk. Maybe you drink right now. Are you like? where do your where do your beliefs about wine come from and 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 poke at them and and it's interesting i you know there's um you were you were mentioning millennials and i would say it, it probably goes beyond that as well but you know what one of the things about where we've landed in the the media landscape and the social media landscape in particular is you know we everything is now a totem Everything is is everything is meant to have a little moment of fetish around it, and uh, which isn't bad necessarily. Like you know, there's 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 value to that, but at the same time, there there really has been a diminishment of curiosity. Yeah, um, probably because every one of us now has literally the world of information at our fingertips. Some of it correct. It's dulled us for sure. I mean, yeah. it's dulled our our interest in things when we can have everything at the same time, right? Yeah, but but I think so. You know, how to be a better wine drinker just you know, like buy different things, ask lots of questions, ask why you like things, ask why you don't like things. I mean, I, you know, I, again, had this weird osmotic, you know, sort of education in wine, but, but all it was when I started to get interested was just asking questions and everyone's like, oh, well, you're sommelier. No, I'm not a sommelier. Like, you know, did you take the, the W set or, you know, study to, you know, get a certification, whatever. I'm like, no, like I just, like drinking wine and I'm, you know, and I'm sort of nosy. And yeah. And you have an inquisitive kind of background in your career, like running the home page at MSNBC. I mean, yeah. so, so it's like, I, 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 yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to sound re- like reductivist, but it's, no. it's not more complicated than that. I mean, I think interrogating yourself is like the number one thing I just took away. I mean, I think being curious is great too, but like thinking like, why do I like that Gamay or why do I like that Vino Verde? Why do I like, or is it a matter of, why do I like the number that's on the screen when I'm checking out? Yeah, because that's another thing you have to like keep in mind. Like sometimes wine drinking is like I like value. I, that's what I like. Yeah, look, and it's you know I I have gone through the full arc of ranting about why industrial <laughs> wine sucks, and you know, and I'm like, I mean, it's all still there. Like it's you know, I I wouldn't say I've necessarily moved away from any of that, but I'm also just like, you know, when 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 wine people sort of you know get up in themselves, <laughs> I. I tend to like to remind folks that what we should be thinking about is White Claw because, uh, because you know, if you want people to like wine, you're going to have to provide a context because if they just want to drink, like, hard seltzer is there for them now. RTD is there for them now. Yeah. Like, you know, you can pop open a Mai Tai in a can, you know, have at it. So, you know, n- none of which, like, you know, n- again, like, none of which is necessarily – Bad. Oh, let's jump just to like, say NA too is there. Yeah, nipping NA, at their heels. Sure. If you want to love wine, then uh, this is like you know Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Like, if you want to love wine, then you just have to love wine. And, and in order to do that, in a healthy relationship, you have to ask yourself questions. Love that. You were JetBlue's wine consultant. I, I absolutely fascinating role. What do we? What? What? Like? What? Give us some like information about drinking. 
um, on a plane? Like, what did you learn when you started working with an airline about about behavior, about what people like, what people, what you need to serve? I, you know, I wish that I had, I wish that I had been handed a, a deep stack of market research, yeah. which you would think, yeah. given the, the risk-averse places that airlines are, yeah. with good reason, um, that, you know, that we would play it safe. But honestly, my mandate there was to to not play it safe. And to originally it was to build a program around the new California, um, and then we expanded it. But, you know, the in the end, it was basically, look, this was especially for, for Mint, which is their business class, like – this is supposed to be a different business class. We want a different wine program. And, you know, there's lots of things about your taste is dulled and, you know, this is that. That's why the food is salty. It's why I, like, mm-hmm. never get on a plane without packets of hot sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, All kind of true. Yeah. But, like, but 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 really it, it was just a matter of I want to put really good quality wine on here. Um, our costs were exponentially more than pretty much any other domestic airline because we were often buying direct from producers. And cool. so it wasn't like, you know, can I get it for two fifty a bottle? It was, you know, these were bottles that would be 30 to $80 bottles whole retail. And we were, we were buying them at wholesale and sometimes at a discount, but you know, but this, this, this program cost yeah. JetBlue money, but it, it was like a loss leader. It sounds like yeah, a but it, bit. but it was also you know we're going to put Turley's Infidel on board, mm-hmm. and there's you know there's a lot of people who seeing that wine, which they think they can only get in a restaurant, that sends a very specific message. We were the first people to put a rosé on board, which wasn't like wasn't even a huge thing. It was just I would think it was literally like sitting around talking, being like, well, what if we like it's spring, it'll be summer, like what, what if we put a rosé on board? And, and it was like, well, sure, and and. Now now, of course, it's funny because everyone has rosé on board. Yeah. And they're in cans now. I mean. Right. And I mean, you know, so it's it's actually interesting now because you can drink much better only yeah. because, yeah, because cans and RTD have made it mm-hmm. much easier. But like, you know, it, it was just – it was literally just looking at what had become very much a – a bottom line dollars and cents uh, approach to that type of service and saying, what if we did it differently? Yeah. Do you think you'll get back in that game? Never know. Yeah. F- phone lanes are open. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Resi. You're managing editor there. Resi, we know, is the app that gets us into restaurants or doesn't get us into restaurants. It, it just depends on the day and the mood. But what is your goal as running editorial? I, I love it. You, we share a lot of writers. I think the work is 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 excellent. Uh, it's re- it's very like of the moment, obviously rooted in restaurant culture. Um, but tell me a little bit more about how content works on this thing that we think just gives us reservations. Of course. Um, and I should say, um, to be clear, I, I do not speak for Resi, capital R Resi. I speak for myself. Wow, this is like those uh, gambling ads on podcasts. And, yeah, we have and, like disclaimer. And, um, and we have a remarkable editorial team, including an amazing uh, editorial director. Um, but, Who's that? Let's give this a shout out. Uh, Paolo Lucchese. Yeah, Paolo, um, right on. Uh, former colleague at the Chronicle. Definitely. Um, Chronicles are a great pipeline. It sounds like a, yeah. Yeah, a little bias there. And Ben Leventhal has been on the show. He was a founder. Yeah, I don't think he's with the company exactly. anymore, but he's... Uh, um, and, and, and you know, and Ben, who also founded Eater, is, yeah. is a large part of the reason that editorial is, is baked into Resi's Definitely, DNA. definitely. Um, so it's funny you mentioned the app because the app is a part of the Resi experience, but uh, the website is actually a big part of the Resi experience. Um, same booking capability, but the website is really infused all over the place with editorial, uh, including uh, one of the things that I oversee, which is uh, the monthly hit list, uh, which we have in 
19 markets, 20 markets. Um, and that's, you know, each month, 10 restaurants, some on Resi, some not on Resi. And that's always been that way. I love that. that yeah. I did not know that, actually. So yeah. that's actually very important. And it's, love that. again, like it's, it's uh, you know, I, I'm on the ramparts basically every month just being <laughs> like, you know, and, and sometimes even to our writers being like, you know, I, I get it. Like you, you know, you, you, you know who signs your paycheck. Fair enough. But um, but some of it in terms of, of really building a robust and a legitimate editorial program there was saying, like, we have to acknowledge that there is a bigger world. And the goal of Resi, you know, ultimately is to connect people with restaurants they love. Yeah. And so some of that is going to be curation and recommendations. And even when we, you know, like our, our, our premium sort of membership tier, which is global dining access, like we do the same thing, uh, you know. Some sometimes things will be easier to get into than others, but it's also saying this is, you know, we're here to get you to a restaurant you love. Yeah. And and this is really important. This isn't about fine dining. It's about great dining. Yeah. I mean, that's what the resi um, ethic is. If you're a user or power user, you're you're definitely not only getting, you know, three star or th- whatever we want to call it like higher end or even whatever yeah, the fuck you call it. <laughs> uh, but, but some, some of it is just, is, is literally just like, look, it, it could be a taco truck. It could be a pop-up. It could be, you know, it could be a bakery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, there's great, great things that you are going to love in all forms. Most of them, honestly, and t- to the point about Paris and the Etoile and versus East Paris, like West versus East Paris, like great dining today is not fancy. No. It's, it's just, it's, it's it could be higher than the number you want to pay. We'll get it. That's all we I talked mean, about a lot. If you want, show. if you're, if you are a fan of bro Mikase, <laughs> the world is your oyster. I love it. Let's talk about booking though. And you are speaking for yourself uh, as a longtime uh, restaurant goer and an expert in the field. It feels like it's really, really, really hard to book a table right now. How do we do that? How do we actually make it easier? On ourselves, that is. Sure. Um, so there's, I mean, we, we spend a lot of time asking that question. We have a, a series called The One Who Keeps the Books, which is literally talking to the person who yeah. is managing uh, managing the book at the front of the, the house. The 950 in the wait list for some restaurants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and so, you know, some of it is very straightforward. You know, the Notify tool, which is part of Resi, is is valuable. And you have to, I, I swear, you just have to, like, trust in it at some point. It's so fire. I mean, like, yeah. let's get real. The, no, it's the best thing about Resi is the, is the Notify button. It's just truly the best. So... Don't tell Allison Roman. She uh, <laughs> doesn't like it. She yeah, is a skeptic. Yeah. She, we did talk about that. But um, I, 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 and I think you're right that there is uh, definitely a, a, a skepticism when you don't hit like the four or five times you hit notify. But I think you're going to hit more times than not. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if I, if I take a step back from that, like my real advice is, you know, Restaurants are in a weird place. We've come out of three years of a pandemic. Uh, labor, you know, yeah. the labor the labor shortage is real. The supply chain is real. It's just, you know, we, we all want to get back out and live the 20s of the 21st century. Um, so, like, it's not hard. Uh, you know, you need to be flexible. Uh, you need to probably be okay with going early, maybe sitting at the bar. 
Uh, and like, do, do you need like, I'm going to have a table cause I'm having a birthday mom's in town, whatever. Uh, or are you just like, whatever, I, I really want to go eat at Sema. So how am I going to make that happen? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, and, dope. and, 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 and candidly, like, I, I wish I could say that this was a new thing, but I think back to when I was in San Francisco in the late aughts and Nopa was my favorite restaurant in the world. And I would have to do the same thing. Like if I wanted a seat, I had to go at 448 yeah. and get in line to like grab a bar at the at bar, grab a seat at the bar at five. And like that was that was my thing. So I'm like, you know, none of this is none of this is is reinventing the wheel. I remember being in college and, and Latoile was the restaurant in Madison, Wisconsin. Yep. And I remember waiting on the sidewalk to get in for that later that night to get a book. Yeah. To get in the book. Yeah. Um and, and the one other thing, and this this is a, just to bring it back to France, of course. Sure. This is a, a, a lesson that you learn by actually being in Paris uh, for more than kind of a week when you start to get used to the, the rhythms of life there is the notion of being a regular is the single most valuable thing that you can do in terms of creating a relationship with dining. And I know, you know, we all have zero attention spans. We want to like go out, see what's new, see like, you know, see what's grammable that particular second. But like creating that relationship and especially now is going to pay endless dividends. And um, I would say, you know, the thrill of constantly dashing to the new place at some point becomes a little bit less thrilling and you like having a sustained relationship mm. with a great restaurant and it's just a matter of building it and i would say with with a very small number of exceptions like almost every restaurant wants to create that because they want to know when you walk through the door they want to know that you are going to keep supporting them and that you're there and that you uh you you like what they do and you are you're going to yeah. support them. This is this is all seems again like totally redundant, uh, but it's it's true. Like the the rules, even now, even in you know, everyone has to write the no one can get a reservation story. Like even in 2023, the rules haven't changed. Yeah, it's true. Good point. Can't forget about France. Can't forget about the salad composé. There we go. You're right. Once, what the French call the salad composé, the composed salad, was an essential part of any restaurant or dinner party menu and a foundational pillar in any French chef's oeuvre. Okay, have we lost the plot on the salad composé, Jean Bonnet? I don't think so. I, uh, I actually yes. To to you won your your story yeah. is netted exactly. Yeah, my, results. my 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 taste essay on uh, 2018, 2019, yeah, whatever. Clearly pivoted the entire culinary world to to go back to salad. Ah. Um, yeah, uh, but so honestly, to um, you know, just keep pulling all the the you know the old ones out of the 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 yeah. closet. We are in the salad days, uh, <laughs> which is to say, if you if you look at where, like most new American cooking is could be red sauce Italian. Like the chopped salad is having a moment and I'm here for it. Um, it could be, you know, you look at like the, you know, lentils and roast vegetables and, you know, and labne, uh, or even the fact that middle Eastern is so hot right now. And like you, 
the expectation. Sell the team. Yeah. Like, like yeah. Laser Wolf sell the team. Exactly. Huge. Like, so, I mean, it's really fascinating. And you take that, you take like Tin Fish. Um, the way I was, I was describing it last night to someone is that um, now is the, the, now is the true glory days of the garde manger yeah. to talk about the old French system. This was, this was like the person who had to do the cold, cold apps. Yeah. yeah. And like, it's, it's amazing because, you know, there's so much of cooking right now. Again, labor costs, like, you know, post-pandemic, uh, maybe chain, having a cold kitchen, maybe like our new regulation where gas is going to be banned in New York. City. Right. So it's, I mean, the, you know, people are eating tons of this stuff in, yeah. in all sorts of forms across, across cultural references, across types of cuisine, you know, all of it. And, and so it's, it's fascinating because what, what was my point in the essay, which was that, you know, this this great sort of cold part of the meal, which was extraordinary and was a very important part of the progression and went away during the kind of, you know, fancified dining of the mid-century, is now back in like a somewhat different context, although someone I'm sure will bring back, you know, all of Escoffier's great recipes. Mm-hmm. But but it could be, you know, could be Vietnamese, it could be Thai, it could be, like I said, you know, Italian chopped salad, whatever it is. Um you see that it is now a back to being an intrinsic part of dining in 2023 to say nothing of, which was again in the essay to say nothing of sweet green, which I think everyone thought was going to kind of come up and down and, you know, everyone was sitting at home in their sweatpants and no one's going to eat sweet green. Sweet green is killing it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think it's different from like the nineties when salad was a health thing and, and really a fad. Like I think people have made peace with salad for dinner, (laughs) salad for dinner. Like this, this is, this is, this is a really fun part of dining. Yeah. And so, and I think like the salad books that have come out in the past couple of years have been really nice too. And I feel like, uh, we're going to maybe revisit that topic. I don't think you can write for taste because of your role at Resi. I would ask I you. I could probably write for taste. Okay. Well, let's, let's, yep. let's get a part two of that. The, 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 the question is, do I have time for No, I, I know you, you know, don't have time but, now. Um, I can't let you go without giving us three restaurants we should go to. This is just off the dome places that you think we, I know you, you're giving me a face of how the, f- why are you asking me that? But this is, this is the question I actually needed to prepare. I know, John, and I did not give you this in the prep, but I, I just off like you say, Sema that that came out of your your dome. What, give us just three names that are popping around. Let's just focus on New York City. We have a lot of our listeners are, are visiting the city um, this spring and summer. So where should they go? Yeah, um, I mean, Sema slash Damaka, yeah. um, remarkable like transformational Indian cooking. Masala Wala and Sons as well, which is in my neighborhood. Yeah, that talk about Rezi. You can't get you can't get enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and if anyone thinks that I have you know nah. some special magic, let me. Me assure you, uh, I am I am in the fight along with the rest of y'all. Great place. Um, but um, I would put you know a- any of uh, any of Unapologetics um, restaurants on that list. Um, I would put Red Hook Tavern, which I wow, an oldie, yeah, I, relative oldie. Um, you know, that. and it's just like I I love that they are so focused on exactly what they do. Yeah, um, which is make a very good hamburger. Very good hamburger, like favorite shrimp cocktail ever, I think, and remarkable wine list. And it's just like, you know, they, I love that they are, they've sort of doubled down in the Alaska cocktail, which is a very specific choice. Mm. Um, and, and with that, I'd actually sort of draw a dotted line to Gus's Chop House, which I put oh. in, in a similar range. I've not made it. That's my old neighborhood. I have yeah, not made it to Gus's. Um, cool. It is fantastically good. This is the the uh, folks who have Popina, which is also great. But yeah. like doing a quote unquote Chop House, which is not a steakhouse, um, but is uh, I think their view of what like, you know, a, a meat 
a meat forward ish uh, restaurant. Can you give us be. one in Manhattan? Can you just do it? Uh, well, there was Sema. So there oh yeah, go. Sema. You, you um, up, yeah, right. Because uh, the one other I was going to mention was Saint Julivert, um, which I truly like. I love what Alex and team are doing yep. there. A um, little bit more fish focused, um, but Manhattan. Um, I'm like you because I, I definitely uh, would always say places in my neighborhood. We your your name in Spotsville neighborhood, but it's just how we dine, you know. So this will not be a huge surprise, and I feel like I'm preaching to the choir uh, in suggesting that anyone go to K Town, uh, which is still a pretty remarkable place, and it, I I truly love the way that. Korean food has has evolved and come up in New York in the past five, five, yeah. eight years. And so I, I will give sort of two as as not even counterpoints, but like they do similar things in slightly different ways. One is Attaboy, which uh, JP and Elia are remarkable. And, uh, you know, they, they've been transformational in, I think, getting people to understand the the depth of Korean cooking. Mm-hmm. And Jua, yeah, Jua, which similar place, a little bit more a uh, little bit more focused in its concept, but uh, both, again, sort of pursuing this this neo-Korean concept, K-Town adjacent, yeah. but in truly, I think, you know, if, if you come to New York to see where food is at its best, where the future is, those are restaurants along, it, like I said, with, with Sema and the, the unapologetic yeah. posse. Like, I think those so encapsulate the the future of American food. I love that. Definitely a thesis in our upcoming book, Korea World, I must say. Yeah. Uh, Korean food in New York. I want to hear about your next book. Yeah, no, but (laughs) let's get to that question. We ask all guests on Taste Podcast. If you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to travel, to drink wine, to maybe not drink wine, to make salad, what would that book be, John? Didn't I just do that? Like I mean, the, the book that never ends. I think it's true. Um, <laughs> you had a budget, though. Uh, my budget was <laughs> I'm just going to keep spending money and go deeply into debt. Uh, it was I do like not, I do six not, figure, but I mean, beyond. Yeah, I, I do not recommend it. Yeah, um, let's I, just I, say let's just say that the 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 advance has been spent. The advance, yeah, and you're getting a few more checks at some point, and those yeah. are priorities. Um, so it's funny. Um, the 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 dream wine book that I've wanted to do for a long time, which will not not happen, and I've pitched it, whatever, is the new Australian wine, and uh, mostly because like. Everything that's interesting in wine is happening there, and it's happening in a different context. It's eight thousand miles away from anything else. Yeah. But there's there's a deep narrative there that I would love to explore. But uh, you know, I am I live in a commercial world, and I <laughs> can accept where sales of Australian wine are now. Um, there's a part of me that would love to immerse myself in Japan. I know I would never come out again, mm. um, and I'm not sure what book is in that. Um, and so. Where I kind of land, and I am clearly insane for saying this, Mm. is there's a part of me that wants to go back and do for French food what I just did with wine, which is to say everything that I've said about how France is transforming and how France as as an anchor of cuisine in the world um, is, is, is crucial, I really want to explore that. And I, and I got to do some of that for the book, but you know, ultimately you actually have to write about the thing you're supposed to write mm-hmm. about. Um, and there's just, there's so much there. Like if you read Lauren Collins, New Yorker piece on, on the French tacos, like there's, there's so much that I, I have yet to see someone really like get, get their hands into. Um, 
that said, um, like probably the only truism that's more true mm. than never get involved in a land war in Asia is never write about France. And I know that now. John Bonet, thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast. That was really fun. Alice Firing, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. So I read your book in two days. Awesome. It, it's great. <laughs> to fall in love, drink this. I, I mean, I've never read any of your memoirs and any of your, your actual personal writing. I know you've had a few books, and we'll talk about the book you wrote in 2008. But this book is, it really is a story of, it's a New York story. It's a Jewish story. It's a story about love. It's a story about heartbreak. It's a story about your mom. Mm, very much so, yeah. How is your mom? Uh, she's... Uh, every day is a different story, but she's fine. Thank you. <laughs> oh, gosh, I, I'm I'm pulling for your mom after. She... <laughs> what inspired she's a handful? What inspired the book? What inspired the book was in the middle of the well, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I wrote a story for New York Magazine, an essay about drinking alone during the pandemic, and. After it was published, my agent wrote to me and said, I want a book of essays. And I said, I've always wanted a book of essays, but who's going to publish them? And she said, oh, just shut up and do it. So I said, okay, you know, nothing else to do except do what I want to do. So I gave it a shot. That's what inspired it. I love it. We share an agent, Angela Miller. Shout out to her. So Angela, to say, like, I, I want a book of essays. Let's just do it. I love it. These essays, the way they unfold, though, it's not... In my opinion, it's a there is a narrative, narr narrative, and and you're you're yeah. following threads in your life. Yeah, there was a narrative. So the thing is, you know, I I actually haven't read a lot of memoir and essays, even though I understand it's kind of a thing right now. But I don't view my life. I guess it's all in the telling, right? But my life is being completely fascinating. And as people say, oh, write your memoir as a wine writer. I said, well, that's not what's that interesting. But so I've had some interesting episodes in my life that I think are would be fascinating to anybody. And they were extremely formative. So the notion was to take key episodes of my life, string them together into a life narrative of how basically I became me, uh, which how this short, red-haired Jewish girl from an Orthodox background became probably, well, to say you're, you're a controversial wine writer is, is a paradox in itself, because who is a controversial what is controversial mm. about wine writing? So it's basically what made me the person who attracted a lot of trouble in my life. I'd say fearless <laughs> is the word I'd say. Well, thank fearless you. Fearless wine writer because you, you do so controversy and and that's a good thing. You create dialoguing and 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 spoiler, uh, there's a serial killer uh, in the narrative. Yeah, serial killer alert. Yeah, a serial killer. Alert. We, we I don't want to get actually get into that because there's a lot more to cover. But there is a serial killer and your interaction with the serial killer in 1969 or eight. Um, yeah, but it was really I. I was going to say not to make it about me, but this is about me. It is about, about me. you. Stop it. <laughs> it's just, I, having been extremely painfully shy, it is really strange that I found myself in this position. And that is what I found to be the, the story, the interesting part of the story. Else, what gets you out of bed every morning to start writing? Because clearly you're prolific. Fear. Fear. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, if I... 
if I don't write, who am I? I I think a lot of writers might have that. Needing to make a living, not having a safety net. But also, I think it's mostly about my identity. It is writing is who I am. And so that's what does it. And you write every day? I write every day. And the firing line is your uh, is your newsletter, and you've you've published it well before there was a thing called Substack. Right, well before. In fact, people have been saying you should go over to Substack, and I actually yeah. thought about it, and I'm like, why am I trading one paid platform for another? No. So I actually am using Substack as a way for people to discover me, and then I feed them over to the firing line. I I, I love that you're also a digital entrepreneur. You've been writing for yourself since 2013 in that way in the well, firing line. In the firing line, well, it started blogging. Oh, my God, you remember that? In 2004. Sure. I was goaded into that. Then I was goaded into going onto Twitter, the same thing. I've been dragged onto social media platforms. But I started this version of the newsletter, the paid version, uh, Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. And you write about the the, going to fetch your mom um, during Hurricane Sandy. And I love that your mom worked in the Diamond District on the Bowery. Yes. I, I bought my engagement ring in that Did in you? that market. Yeah. Which uh which address? Do you remember? Uh it was the one right off Canal, like just a block up north of Canal. Mm-hmm. So uh was it seventy two Yeah, Seventy two. That's, That's it. Right. I probably know the person you bought Susan it from. Susan from H- KMS. Yes. I know everybody down there. Because <laughs> I I basically it's funny because I live about five blocks away from you there. You write about that, right. And it is like my personal terroir, even though I was born in Brooklyn, raised in Baldwin, Long Island. My aunt and uncle had a place at 66 Bowery, and we were always in the city. And that is really, those are my memories of going growing up, not really Long Island. So I want this conversation to, we will dive into wine and some questions I have about mm-hmm. the, about wine and natural wine and and. But I also, I really want to get into your journalism and your writing Mm -hmm. because that really is the way I see you. I see you as a writer and not a wine writer, capital W. Let's talk about your travel because, you know, before the pandemic or maybe even now, you're you're traveling like 80 to 120 days a year. Yeah. And I feel... Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. I'm working up to it now, but still that's, that has been, that's what it should be. (laughs) When you hit the road to cover wine or cover food or whatever you're mm-hmm. writing about, what are you what are you searching for? Well, story. I have an idea of what. Um, obviously, you know, there are people who are experts in Burgundy, Bordeaux, I could care less about. Um, sorry, Bordeaux. Uh, Shots but, fired. I love it. <laughs> but, you know, they, but basically, there are enough people covering that. Sure. And I am looking for wine for the people. I am looking for stories of the people. I'm not looking for necessarily, I hate doing wine recommendations. In fact, that's why I started the newsletter, just because I hate it. Mm -hmm. And if people want recommendations from me, they're going to have to pay for it. Sorry, guys. Um, And, you know, I'm good at it. I'm good in... But it's so I'm looking for people doing really interesting things, beautiful work, beautiful agriculture, and something that has maybe a bit of a different hook. So when I started writing about natural wine, the world was open. Everything was a story. And now it's not that new. No, it's hashtag natty wine. Exactly. Which is the whole thing. And so when I found Georgia, it was like, oh, my God. So you go, you have an idea, you have a list of people who are doing new stuff. Uh, interesting. 
one thing leads to another. I sometimes I go with a specific story, especially I try to give myself that assignment. Yeah. Like um, last time I was in Burgundy because I do go to Burgundy and I find what's happening in Burgundy extremely interesting. But I went there to find out why would anybody want to make wine here, which may sound like a strange question. And that's coming up in the next newsletter. Mm -hmm. But if you're starting out, why does anybody in their right mm -hmm. mind, if they don't have money, go to Burgundy to make wine? It's crazy. So um, things like that. You write extensively about Georgian wine over your career. I was hanging out with a four and a half year old and looking at a map. And how do you pronounce the capital of Georgia? Tbilisi. Tbilisi. Sorry. Thank you. I just had to ask that right away because I, I just. Or if like, or Tbilisi. Tbilisi. <laughs> so no T in there. Okay. Right. You've been called the Patty Smith or the Ruth Bader Ginsburg of natural wine. Right. I have to laugh and ask you, I what does that mean? Too. I don't know. But um, I guess Patty Smith being rock and roll. Sure. Uh, and being, and I think for both of those people, not afraid to be outspoken. I agree. And I, I think that's what I read from it too. I also read that there is immense creativity in your writing. They're both writers. And I think that's what the connective tissue is between those two references. Pretty pretty cool though, right? Have you met, Very cool. did you get to meet either of them? No, I haven't. Oh man. But Patty Smith is a wonderful writer. Yeah, I, I like her Beautiful. first. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just kids. Just kids. Well, that I mean, yes. you were you were in New York in that in that around in, in like the late seventies. Yeah, just about to head up to Boston. I left for Boston in seventy seven, but but I lived in New York, trying to find the door between seventy six and seventy seven in Manhattan. I just mm. could not figure out how. I, I I know I keep on thinking, where is the door? Where's the door to New York? Mm -hmm. Even though you were born here and you Even had family. I was, well, I had no connections. I wasn't going to go in the jewelry business and I certainly wasn't going to be a lawyer. Right. So, But you worked in uh, healthcare yes, over your course of your, your I did. career. I did because I was a dancer. Yeah. And so I got my master's in dance therapy up right. in Boston. And what happened there, oddly enough, when I was writing my master's thesis is when I went back to writing and I just didn't stop. Didn't stop. And it took about six years to get the nerve to decide to come back to New York. And then it took four years to figure out how. You, speaking of Boston, you write in, in your book about um, an evening spent with Nina Simone. Yes. And serving her, bringing a bottle of sparkling wine. Um, you can talk about what you, what you brought for her. But I have to ask a little bit about that episode. But, and also, who have you also shared glasses with? Not a whole lot of famous people. Or just interesting people. It doesn't be super Oh, for in the wine world. I yeah. mean, it's just, it's mostly in the wine world. Yeah. Like people like Pierre Ovenois, like who gave me a book party was probably one of the most exquisite evenings of my life. <laughs> you know, it's like kind of legends like that. Marcel LaPierre, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. some of the original people in natural wine movement, um, like Jacques Nepour, who lives in a tiny little village on the Ardash, and that was an epic mm. ten-hour afternoon. Uh, it was so people like that. I I don't really do the celeb world a lot. But back to Nina, because that seems like it was a moment in your life where you're just starting to think about wine as the the power of wine. Um, you know, engaging with bringing a bottle. You brought a bottle to a concert she held, which seemed to go kind of poorly. Well, I kind of knew there would be an after party, so mm -hmm. that's why. But yes, the party went, the the, the concert was a little bit of a disaster. So it was hmm. basically a first date 
Yeah, actually, and there are a bunch of actually going back. Aaron Siskind, mm. the photographer Aaron Siskind. Yeah, um, I also spent time with. He was fabulous. But so this was a first date of photographer who had been old friends with Nina, and I thought, okay, so we go to her, well, her hotel suite, and she starts to, to, you know, like decide not to go to the concert, and her producer's on the phone. To Nina. There's 2,200 people waiting. There are 2,200 people waiting for her, and we're an hour and a half late. And I finally I finally take out my mental health toolkit yeah. and uh, kind of encourage her to go. So that story is in there. And, uh, yeah, so that was it was thrilling because at that, that was the point where I had decided that I, I had to be a writer. It was a very—I was going to go back to New York the following year. I was going to figure out a way to do it. And meeting her was being near an artist like that who lived her life fully for her art and also social justice had a great effect. And you write about the after party and having an interaction with another jazz legend. Yeah, Freddie Hubbard. (laughs) Freddie Hubbard, yeah. You write about an incident that seems quite traumatic. It wasn't traumatic. It was just because I got out of it. But it was more like it was... Uh, here is where uh, generation probably is different. And my generation, if somebody's coming after me, like trying to like kiss me, yeah. like it's, and I get out, it's like, oh my God, Freddie Hubbard just tried to like really like come on to me in a very Locked persuasive way, like yeah. me in the bathroom. But um, I know there was no force involved. I hear you. And I hear what you're saying. It is a generational moment. And and certainly uh, there's the way you cover it is is just the way this book flows. And it's just so effortless, uh, the stories that you have. And I just love the I love the way you write. And and it goes also back to Robert Parker. I wanted Mm -hmm. to segue to that because Mm -hmm. I think in 2008, you took on Robert Parker. You were the Robert Parker Slayer of sorts. I love that. Yeah, the way you said that, the Robert Parker. Parker Slayer. For our audience, I'd like to set some context because mm-hmm. I would like for you to say in 2008, what, what book did, what did you write and, and how did it change the way we kind of write about wine? Okay, so for the listeners who don't remember who Robert Parker is, he was and still might be in a certain world the most the world's most famous wine critic for about 20 years he did a lot to um well people used to say democratize the wine <laughs> world which is kind of funny but he developed a newsletter the wine advocate that became immensely popular and if he scored a wine like 95 to 100 it would immediately sell out so he had amazing economic power this power greatly influenced my ability or affected my ability to get a wine that I wanted to drink because most winemakers in the world and most regions in the world were trying to manipulate their wine into a wine that he liked, which quite frankly was big, powerful, and oaky, the antithesis of an Alice wine. So uh, I had already written, well, it was one book, but I wanted a book. And I thought I would write a book about natural wine. And I remember going to, looking for an agent who threw me out, basically. And I can't sell this book. And it's like, nobody wants to read this. This isn't the book you want to write. And she thought she knew what I wanted to write. But she was right. I 
This was not the book I wanted to write. I felt nobody would listen to me if I wrote this book in my own voice. Mm. I was going to write it as a reported book. Yes. And so I probably, I just, um, I remember going to ballet class, leaving half through the class because I knew exactly, I had the name of the book, The Battle for Wine and Love or How I Saved the World from Parkerization. I love that title. So and good. this was the book of how Rob, the Robert Parker effect was wiping out the wines that I felt were the most important ones in the world. And I was going to write it memoir-like. Yeah, that's your style. And and that book is, it covers uh, the power that you, you speak of. And then this this gradual switch away from those bold wines and and to this day now into the current era we've kind of reversed right. our taste right. so i have to follow it up because now in 2022 you know there is a cult of alice and i have you're very understated and you're very modest in this interview but you really have your fans and you have a lot of power your newsletter is well read so now after taking on robert parker how do you feel about this dichotomy now that there's you the cult of alice firing and you you are a version of Robert Parker, not the same style. Nor do I have the same power, and uh, which is a very good thing. Yeah. Which is beca- because it was getting so close to one world, one taste. And now there's much more diversity. So, yes, I have my fans, though, you know, especially in the past two years, I haven't seen much of them. So hmm. it's hard. It's easy to forget that they're out there. But every time somebody signs up for the newsletter, I go, wow, great. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ding. <laughs> How many subscribers do you have? Uh, I have a, it's not earth shattering, but 800. Oh, that's good. I mean, it's, it's great. But it's influential people in the industry. And- it's great. You know, it does have power and, uh, and it has, you know, just normal readers, a lot of industry, um, a lot of people looking for good leads. So there's a lot of travel stuff in there, travel, food. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you've reviewed restaurants and you've, mm-hmm. your food writing. I'd right. love to collaborate with you on a story one day. That'd be great. It'd be really great to, to work on some, some food writing. Um, let's shift to, to wine. Like let's, for our, for our listeners, there's a lot of context uh, to provide um, and a lot of nuggets that you can gain from reading the book. And there's, you say you don't really give bottle picks in the, in your articles, but you have some bottle, bottle picks. In, yeah. In, it's a staple. Yeah. I do a lot. I do a lot. I have over like 1,500 wine recommendations at this point. Wonderful. And and so let's talk about Americans. Americans are conditioned to buy the grape, right? Oh, yeah. Which, you know, is such a ooh. disservice, right? And I, I know, right? Ooh. <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of similar. I write about coffee quite a bit. And I think buying the country is quite the same, kind of the same idea. It's like you buy the grape. Like, uh, you know, people want to buy a Merlot or people want to buy, I mean, it, you could name the grape, Sauvignon Blanc in particular, Malbec. But like, why is that wrong? It's wrong because it doesn't tell you anything about the wine that you're going to get. Not a clue. In fact, if somebody comes in and they order by the grape, if you order Chardonnay, you expect something oaky and fat and low acid. If you order a Malbec, you are ordering something from Argentina, even if you don't know. Hmm. If I gave somebody ordered a Malbec, something from Cahors, which was the same grape, they'd be shocked. And it's also completely, it has no curiosity. Mm-hmm. It's And so maybe 
it's fine to order by the grape for a person who wants to know exactly. That person is not necessarily going to be interested in a wine with a lot of expression. They're interested in a beverage. They're interested in a Coke, a Pepsi. And that should be fine, Mm -hmm. except if that person really is curious. And this happens a lot. And they go, wow, you mean the home of Malbec really originated in southwest France? Honestly? Like, what is that like? I'll tell you this. It's not a fruit bomb. Yeah. And wait, Chardonnay from the Jura? Yes, I think Chardonnay from the Jura is probably the most extremely beautiful expression. Really, what is it like? It's kind of like lean and angular and it sparks and it's kind of salty and like, no kidding. Which is not what you're going to get in California, obviously. Same grape. No, so it just, it limits you to as if you, you as if... It's all the same, but it's not. I There's love a whole world of wine. Speaking of Jura, you, you talk about the your introduction to those wines and just beautiful wines and, and how everyone wasn't drinking Jura, but now they are. Mm-hmm. It's such a cool moment. It is a cool moment for them. Tell me how then, well, first off, I like how you delineate. You say some, some people just want to drink and it's okay. Like you're very clear about that. And I like that kind of like levels it out. makes it not feel like there's any kind of like right or wrong. Sometimes you just want a Malbec from Argentina and you're at the airport lounge and that's what you want. You get and you want. And more power to them because I can't do that. That's when I order martini. <laughs> right. If it's only one Malbec from Argentina. Right, no. <laughs> but I am curious. I am, but I but I don't know anything because I'm very scared. I'm scared about doing the wrong thing. I'm scared about, I guess, paying too much. Maybe I don't right. know what. How do you? Treat I, that? It, you know, it's a philosophical question that I'm always asking myself about. Why is wine so intimidating, and what can be done to make it less intimidating without being simple? Uh, the money factor is a big deal. I think the fact that there's so much elite marketing around wine is a disservice. If we, people really viewed it as an agricultural product, where one gets one shot, if one really one shot at this magical thing, I think that would spark a certain curiosity and a sense of exploration where perhaps it's less intimidating. If people understood that they don't have to spend a fortune. Right now, though, it is really hard to get a bottle of wine to drink that you want to drink at under $15, and that is a pity. Mm-hmm. That's truly difficult. Um, up up to 18 but still for a lot of people, they're going to say, who are interested in wine, yeah, I can do that. Is it because of taxes? Is it because of uh, costs of the world, everything in the world? What, why, why can't we get great wines for under 15. It is the cost of production. Yeah. It is the cost of production, especially a local wine. United States uh, real estate is really expensive. That's actually one reason people are going to Vermont. It's a little bit less expensive there. Uh, It's easier from the old world, the so-called old world. It's easier from Georgia where Land is not that expensive. So go where land is not expensive and you can do better. But even in Burgundy where, you know, go to this old, old lesson that my first mentor called the young wine collector, who's not so young anymore, Mm. (laughs) told me just go, especially in Burgundy, buy the least, the, the wine you can afford the most from a great producer. 
Smart. You mentioned Vermont because you, you, you kind of say a lot of great things about wine in mm-hmm. Vermont and you're such a fan. You have less kind things to say about wine in Long Island. Yes, that's which true. I, which I love. You, you, these are real takes, right? Tell me about Vermont wine. Vermont is truly exciting to me because it is, in the memoir, I talk about it as a, a local wine done right. So it very much annoys me what Long Island did, and I think they are still trying to work out of it. They try to imitate Bordeaux. They thought they were Bordeaux because they're in the same longitude. And they're not Bordeaux. And nor should, and because they were out in the Atlantic. But they tr- picked a style and tried to emulate it. What Vermont is doing is they're growing grapes that grow that should be able to grow in Vermont. They're hybrids. They're not vinifera like Merlot and mm-hmm. Pinot Noir. Not they're, name brand grapes. They're, they're going to no, sell exactly. Yep. Yeah, they have names like Brianna or Marquette, and they're making wine simply with no oak influence. And a lot of them are made in glass, even glass or food grade plastic. Some in old oak and just allowed to be simply what they are. There's a lot of people farming beautifully, and that makes a difference to me too. Yeah, absolutely. The agriculture and the farming um, is so paramount. And we, we, when you go to a winery with, that you know grows their own grapes, you're, you're, you're seeing right. the, the vastness mm-hmm. of the agriculture. Uh, a couple of Vermont wines that we could search out? Yeah, um, Ellison Estate, which is about to go a little bit national. Um, La Garagista, of course. There is a new cooperative called Calce, and they're giving their first release. Mm. They're um, a social, like basically a co-op in socialist co-op, and what they're going to be doing is super interesting up there. Uh, if you can find the wines of Max Rose under the name, under the label Chertok. Mm-hmm. And how am I buying these wines? Am I am I going to Astra Center to name one of many retailers? La, Gar- La Garagista is pretty wildly available. Um, I think the best thing to do is go on just search. Yeah, and you'll find your your econ your retailer. Yeah, I think about walking vineyards, and and you know, I grew up in West Michigan. There's plenty of vineyards there, and there's a, a burgeoning wine scene there. But I think about the vastness of these vineyards, and I think about the climate change. Mm. And I want to just get your take. Just Right. Well, that's wrong. one reason Vermont is so great. And I tell my friends in California, time to think of Vermont. You're going to be safe from fires for at least a while. Fires it, it, fires is, is in particular something that can affect uh, a wine-growing region, right? Well, yeah. You can get your vines going up in flame. So that's kind of bad. Uh, and, and even if they're not going up in flames— Smoke taint is a real thing. So if the fires happen while the fruit is still on the vine, you will have to handle those grapes very carefully. And you get a wide range of bacony char (laughs) to, you really have to get it off the skins as soon as possible. Mm. And so there is something you can do. But is climate change really going to change the way we drink wine? Oh, without a doubt. It's terrifying. Right now in, in France, to take a look at a lot of the grapes that are are sunburned and reducing, it will be reducing yields. It will lower the acidity. It will at some point, at some point to go back to Burgundy, they're not going to be able to grow Pinot Noir there. Mm. It's too sensitive. It's not a hot weather grape. So what are they doing? What are the producers, are they are they replanting? Are they, What is their uh, firewall uh, pun intended against uh, well, destroying? All, all over Europe, there is a lot of experimentation with they are hybrid grapes. They call them PVs. Um, 
they're not sold on whether they're going to be pulling out, especially when you have paid uh, like $2 million an acre. Mm. It's kind of difficult to uh, just pull out all of your old vine uh, pinot. But there's a lot of really good work being done with changing farming, raising the canopy. And here we're getting into maybe geeky stuff that maybe not everybody wants to hear, but there's a lot of stuff you can do in the way you farm that vine that can affect and give it um, protection from the sun and the heat. Before they were struggling to ripen it and now they've got to, they have to either prune it and get a canopy over the grapes so they keep it in an umbrella. That will help a lot. So much more labor though, doing it that way. So much more, yeah. You write about your Jewish background and identity throughout the book. You grew up in a modern Orthodox household. Modern Orthodox, something yeah. that I don't think exists anymore. Yeah, it is pretty. It's everything delineated. is polarized. Yeah, yeah polarized. That's the word. But I, uh, I do want to talk about you. You, you kind of talk about like the idea of the junket and and how you'll you know take press trips only when necessary. And you're very independent. But you did write about a press trip that you took to Poland for the company Belvedere and this junket, and you end up freezing your ass off at Birkenau. Yeah. This, I mean, it's just absurd to say it out loud that you're on a press trip and you end up at Birkenau, but I feel, I've taken junkets myself, but you, as a reporter, you find find the story. Talk about that scene in the book when you're at Birkenau. The reason that I was persuaded to go on this press trip was because my friend, we traveled a lot together, was she really wanted to go to Auschwitz. And I'm, I, you know, Googled to see what was going on in Auschwitz these days. And it looked like a fancy museum that I want to know part of. And I said, oh, please, 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 when will we go if we're not going? Okay, fine. So only if we go to Birkenau. So at this point, we had separated from the press trip. We, the press trip was up in Warsaw and we all did go down to Krakow. For a citrus-flavored yes, Belvedere. Yes, for the yes. citrus flavor. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we took the day off, and we hired a car, and we went to the camps. And Auschwitz was exactly what I expected. And the the barrack that was dedicated to the Jews that perished was closed. It was It was... It was um, Still, when I think about it, I still shake my head. So we went to Birkenau and it started to snow. We were the only people there, which was perfect. That was what I wanted. It was this amazing, I mean, you get to walk through a concentration camp with no one there in the snow, with the barracks um, and the the chimney from the crematory just stuck in the snow because it had been bombed out. It was just chilling. But at one point, we went through the barracks, we you see all the scribblings, the the graffiti. Not has was trying to summon like I could read some Yiddish. It was anyway. So go out and we start walking, and cannot find a way out. We absolutely cannot. trapped in a concentration there was camp. Barbed wire all over the place, and there's one way out, and we could not find the way out. And there was no one there. It was there getting was a, dark. There was this. It was getting. You know, it was. It was getting very dark, but not. It was the middle of the day, but because it was starting to snow and the, the sky was really getting black, so our taxi driver was there, but he, you know, he's sleeping in the car. Mm-hmm. So it was just this moment of, of terror where you know it's unrealistic. But you feel like you're trapped in some sort of somebody else's film. 
and you were going to die. We were getting really, really cold. So, I mean, actually. The irony. The irony of it all. Being on a citrus-flavored vodka press trip and dying at Birkenau. Right. I came back and I wrote about it immediately. And a lot of the stories in the memoir come from pieces that I never published. It's obvious that you have a lot of other stories outside of these ones, but these ones are the ones you've held for a while. Yeah. Did you find those stories percolating just through the pandemic being in isolation? Was that part of the like the catharsis that you that you give? Because I, I again, this book I read in two days, it's just so compelling, your stories. You know, I every time I finish a book, I don't know how I wrote it. I don't know how that happened. It's I don't know whether you have that experience, but it's I knew, I didn't even know, I had one story. I don't write from an outline, but of course I had to do an outline to write the proposal. Uh, I, I can't really explain yeah. how, how, I, how I did it, but I knew that one part about writing about this story was that I had helped to write my cousin's memoir of surviving Medanek and, um, in and out of the Warsaw Ghetto. And I wanted to write this particular one for her and my relationship to her. And I thought, that's one reason. Yeah, and and, and you, you write so uh, colorfully about that that escape and, and some of the, the terrible realities that your family experienced. Mm. Your father is an interesting character and in the, in the acknowledgments, you, you acknowledge that he, uh, that maybe you didn't give him the, the full full time he deserved and maybe you will at a future time but right. he's a, such a character he is such a character um my favorite essay is dad's last gift which involves uh you breaking into his uh filing cabinet after he had passed away um but i want to ask you about to be honest i want to ask you about burn steakhouse because in tampa florida i've always wanted to visit burn steakhouse and 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 anyone i looked at the pdf for the wine list last night because i was just like this wine list is special and and odd to me, just the way it's laid out. But tell me, tell us about Burns Steakhouse. Actually, I should I should go back to I should look at see see what they have left. Yeah, Burns Steakhouse is a legendary steakhouse with one of the most incredible wine lists in the country. And for listeners who've gone to San Sebastian and ever gone to Recondo, mm-hmm. it's kind of the Recondo of the United States. It is deep. It is old. It is shockingly packed with bargains. Now, this is a place that Robert Parker used to go all the time and buy, you know, like have these, as they would call them, big whale, you know, like big investor kind of people are going and spending a lot of money. But I'm with my brother who doesn't really get what I do. And I know, you know, when I'm probably buying, even though he's a cardiologist and, you know, and it's going to be, have to be in a budget. But besides that, there is, so I look in some place like that, I look for something old. And something curious from a good vineyard. And of course, this was in 2004, but for $32, there was this bottle of 1982 Cloth Alibert. Um, that was shocking. You know, and it was probably going to be old, too old, and it was. Yeah, you said that it was too old and, and didn't, didn't quite land the way you wanted. But I looked at the list and there's like Burgundy from the 90s. Mm-hmm. And on, you know, below a hundred bucks. I mean, right. And there's, I'd be curious to see if there's anything still there between 
under 50. Yeah. It probably is. There, there might be old Rieslings like Cabinet, not very fancy things, but there's always, if you know what you're looking for, and today it's easy, you pull out your phone and you Google it. That is my tip. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and see ageable, ageable Cabinet, like what could, you know, something like that. But if it is from a good producer, it probably can at least give you some information. And if a wine is cheap enough, it's worth it to check it out. And it's in Tampa, Florida, of all places. And it's Tampa. It's got to be some tax, tax dodge or something. That's why it's there. I, I don't know. I'm, I might be just really discounting no, it. No, it's oh. been there forever, and it was just a wine lover. Yeah. And it's cavernous. I mean, they roast their own coffee there. I remember the food not being really good. Yeah, it's it's always on like uh, some of the men's mags lists, and there's always some kind of um, narrative around it. But um, let's talk about the absence of natural wine from this memoir because it, it's there, but it's kind of in the margins. Because you wrote a book about natural wine for Ten Speed Press, like, and that that you wrote that book, but this, mm-hmm. I feel like natural wine as a topic is not covered. Um, but I want to know about natural wine right now because the hashtag nattyization, and mm-hmm. I joke because that's basically like how people respond to natural wine now. It's like a meme, right. you know, in the mainstream. My question simply is, is that a good thing or is that not a good thing? The fact that, you know, influencers of all types know about natural wine now? I'm going to take this as a two-part question. Yes. So I don't talk about natural wine in it because it's yeah, it's a wine book, but it's not a wine book. And I've covered how I got into it. And it's it's there about how I got into wine is basically how I got into natural wine. I don't need to beat that. It's no longer new. But all of the wines, or practically all the wines recommended in the book are natural. I just feel I don't have to talk about it. They're all just great wines. Yeah. Now, as about new influencer, mm. <laughs> natural wine, it's about going back to, it might as well, hmm, I don't want to get into too much trouble here. Please. Please get into trouble. Please. I mean, not trouble, but like, you know, it's going, it's what, what's old is new again. Sure. And it's natural wine is being reduced to a style, to producers putting their wines into clear bottles so they could show off the colors. It's like the F words, fizzy funk. Yeah. And and that is not, that is a beverage. That's fun. That's fine. But that's not the kind of wine that, that moves me. And so I don't like natty wine. (laughs) And thank you for saying that. And I just think, I had hoped that by 2022, we would be at a point where natural wine is just wine. And it has had its effect. There's a lot more wine moving over to natural without saying it, just by going native ferment, taking their foot off the gas of sulfur, not using additives, a lot more like that. But the whole natural wine scene, it's being pushed as we're at the party with the party movement and like, okay, fine, you know, but it's not White Claw. It isn't. I would say from my point of view, and I'm not a, I don't drink, but as a net positive, just talking about wine is a good thing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yes. as opposed to not talking about wine, talking about White Claw. So hashtag Natty Wine might get, it might be a gateway Push back, please. If Maybe. I'm... Well, actually, it could be the same way if I order a Chardonnay. 
it's the same thing. If you don't have the curiosity to know exactly what natural wine is or to go back to the farming, because natural wine for me is very much about farming, then you'll never know. You know, I, I don't necessarily believe that you get into great wine by starting out in crap wine. <laughs> uh, I just, in fact, sometimes you get so used to crap wine if you're given something that's really energetic and lively, you don't know how to deal with it. Uh, some people can jump, you know, some of those fish can jump out of the pond, you know, by themselves. I, I think about, I was brought up at the modern Orthodox Jewish home. My, my mother was a 1950s housewife um, who, you know, was a shtetl cook. It was crappy. I mean, she actually was good, but... <laughs> was there some cholent in your uh, household? No, no, no. We didn't have any cholent because yeah. I don't know why, thank God. But I stopped eating meat when I was 16, yeah, so right. that really helped. But the first time I had Indian food out of a house that had absolutely no spice in it, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. <laughs> I remember being at the India Sweet House in Inman Square in Massachusetts, <laughs> Somerville, and just, what is this fabulous thing? Now, I didn't know how to seek that out. And so some people are going to do that with wine. Yeah. What makes crap wine? Uh, what makes crap wine is crap viticulture and then making wine to a style. Yes. So uh, so certainly technical stuff. And for the natural wine, sloppy stuff. There's a lot of stuff that's quick into the bottle, and I don't care what kind of one to use people who I say, no, natural wine isn't bacterial swamp, but now. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that are bacterial swamps and they're being mm. passed off as natural wine. Well, that's enough to turn anybody off, except some people thinking if it's natural, it's good, we'll like it. Oh, there's always like that that drinker that they're searching for that right. that, that this bacterial swamp might actually... Right. Not saying there isn't room for some flaw, that it doesn't have to be perfection, but there are some things that would never have been put in a bottle 15 years ago. As a non-drinker, I wonder, is there a future for non-alcoholic wine? Because I think on the beer side, I love Athletic. I like what they're doing with the NA beers, and there is a real flavor profile. Is does is there a future with alcohol-free wine? I think that beer is in a different category. Sure. I think that some of those, because, you know, it is something that can be made um, weekly, you know, and it is a beverage. Um, there's a lot people do drink for a certain flavor profile. Um, not necessarily the story. Are they doing any sour beers? That they are. are. There's some. There's some IPAs, and there's are some sours. Are those as successful? I, I mean, probably not. I, I haven't done the research, but I would imagine that the the I like lighter IPAs not. are, are yeah. Pilsners are probably yeah the most popular NA beers. But the I mean, wine is dealkalized, so it's it's going through a real extreme process to get that alcohol out. Some. People tell me there's a future. It, <laughs> I guess there, it, there is. You know, you want to be sociable. You want a glass of wine with people. You can't drink, but you want, you know, there, there probably are some non, actually, I'm just thinking about this right now, some mm -hmm. non-alcoholic aperitif wines. I think that one can do a vermouth. Is there any non-alcoholic, is there vermouth out there? I think that, hey, that's a great idea. I think there's I think NA, that like that Phony Negroni is a product right. that I really like. 
personally. Yes. So there's there's definitely some vermouth yeah. happening yeah, in there. But, but for wine that is really about exploring where it is, I'm afraid there's all we can hope for is really low alcohol wine. Yeah, it, it's a great answer because it, it is a different product from beer. And I appreciate the way you've laid it out um, without judgment because I think um, you are talking about the viticulture and the aging and the production in your appreciation of wine, it's not simply what's in the glass. So I, it makes sense why you would be like, maybe not to that to my question. Right. But I think mocktails or whatever we're going to call them, I don't know, could probably do better than mocktails. Hmm. But um, th- those are pretty good. Those well, could the, be tasty. There's something about the acidity of like a Chablis or even a Cabernet, an old Cabernet Riesling, to me, um, that can be, that's, I, I, you know, for me, that was interesting just the way that that, oh, hit. that yeah but then you know there's that evolution it, the evolution of what happens to that fruit but yet the acidity is always going to be there so it comes out even more in a way so that's not going to be able to happen so i'm sorry no it's 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 probably going to be the code will be cracked <laughs> um i want to close we ask all guests on the taste podcast if you could write a book without the burden of time meaning there would be no deadline mm-hmm. Or budget, meaning you'd have unlimited funds to produce this book. What would that book be, Alice? Do I only get one? You can do two. Okay. Uh, well, no, I'm going to do three. Well, the book that I didn't just because I didn't have the money and the one that will always be very sad to me is the history of the dairy restaurant. Now, Ben Catcher did it and, you know, is a graphic book, but I really wanted to do that. So I think a lot of the people I wanted to interview are dead now. I don't read Yiddish. So These are um, the kosher restaurants of the early 20th century, going back further maybe? Uh, yeah, I'd like to know when they started. Yeah. Um, but also the heyday in the 60s and the 70s. And the, yeah, I guess they're all gone by the early 90s. As a piece of New York culture that is gone, and I just want people to know about them. Let's see. I would like to get to work on the screenplay of this memoir. Yeah. Okay. That's what yeah. I want to do. So, uh, so... Is there going to be one? Uh, well, I think it may be up to me to pitch and I would like to develop it. I've been thinking a lot about how I would do it and wondering whether I had the time to do it. Yeah. So I don't know. And the other thing is, you know, it's always... As a writer, I have one novel that is in the drawer that needs its 15th rewrite. But I just started a new novel that I need time and money for to at least. So fiction is definitely on your mind. So fiction, yeah. Alice Firing, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Jancis Robinson, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. It's a huge pleasure. Thank you. I've uh, I followed your writing for for a long time. Um, the big caveat here is I'm I'm not a wine drink. I don't drink. Uh, it's been many years, but I certainly uh, write about wine and spirits, uh, and I and I have tremendous respect for it. But I also want to get uh, a little bit. I want to like poke some holes in some myths with this conversation. I think you've, you've done such a great job at your website and, and writing for the Financial Times doing so. But first, to, to get into it, I wanted to get a sense of your history and just like your background of getting exposed to wine, maybe air quotes, serious wine, uh, while you're studying at Oxford. How did you get the wine bug? How did it bite you? <laughs> I wasn't brought up with wine, which was typical of 
people of my generation. Um, but there was, and I think this is true for so many people who end up spending their lives devoted to wine, there was one wine that lit the flame. And it was a, a red burgundy. It was a 1959 Chambol Musigny Les Amoureurs. Um, and it was just, I was lucky because I had a boyfriend who's, whose father gave him a bit too much money and some of that was spent on me. Um, <laughs> and it it just tasted so much better than student plonk. And <laughs> I, I just realized, because I, I loved food and wine generally, but I, I just realized that here was a liquid that contained so many different elements, you know, like kind of history and geography and um, psychology probably. And it delivered... A huge amount of sensual pleasure, but I could tell that it would keep the brain alive and interested as well. You know, lots and lots of of uh, intellectual stuff too. Well, you write that wine. You're drawn to wine because it's a huge sensual pleasure with real intellectual stimulation. The merging of the two, which I think is such a sharp observation. Um, and you're not really you're not getting that with like broccoli or ice cream or, <laughs> or other foods that we canonize a bit in food writing, but you're not getting that blend of intellectual and just interesting flavors. I suppose what distinguishes wine to a certain extent is its ability to age and evolve, not just to last, but to evolve in a really interesting way over time so that with good wine, it will taste completely different after, say, 10 years um, in the bottle. But also, when you look at a wine label, um, pretty Almost uniquely, it can tell you exactly which spot on the globe grew it and when it was made. And that's that's really adds enormously to how interesting it can be because an awful lot of foodstuffs, they're just kind of plonked on the shelf for the plate. And um, I mean, certainly it's, it's getting better that retailers and particularly restaurateurs more and more are naming the grower and or, or exactly where it came from but it, they won't usually it won't usually have that um specificity no we live in a world of metadata i mean metadata <laughs> drives our universe and and for, for for a long time even i mean now to your point like food is is certainly not traceable in the way that certain government regulated products like wine are required by law to put a number of bullet points on the on the label although Jumping in here yep. on a little tangent, um, until now, wine has escaped legislation that requires producers to list every ingredient, unlike oh, yeah. foods. But I've, I really don't like that, and I've been campaigning against it. I wouldn't say it's anything to do with me, but the EU are bringing in requirement that wine producers do list the ingredients mm. on the labels or if not explicitly on the label that the back label will have a QR code that you can access. Chances what what are okay like me speaking just generally like I'm like grapes and like what else is in wine like let's just get there go there. Sure. Well it all depends of course how artisanal the the wine is. And there are wines that literally are just grape juice and um, sunshine, I yeah, suppose. Time, sunshine. Yeah, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Um, but it's true that um, grape juice can deteriorate quite rapidly, like all fresh fruit juices and and a lot of fruits. So since Roman times, a little bit of sulfur or sulfur dioxide has been added. It's like a kind of antioxidant, an anti-bacterial. Um, 
you know, all that kind of thing. It's not evil, even though um, wine labels say contain sulfites. That's a kind of slight mm, misconception. Um, um, so it can have a little bit of that, uh, a little bit of sulfur dioxide um, or sulfites. Um, in cool years or climates in the old days before global warming, Sugar was quite often added to the fermentation vat to give the vintner something more to ferment, get the yeast, give it more to work on. Uh, it wasn't, it didn't remain in the, in the finished wine as sweetness, but it just slightly increased the alcohol content. That has become rare, although last year, 21, was so cool that quite a lot of French vignerons were What's the word for that when you had sugar? Chaptalization. Chaptalization, uh, right. after, I love that word. Yes, after a French government minister called Chaptal. Yeah. Uh, in hotter climates, it's very, very common to add acidity to make the, the wine kind of fresher, crisper tasting. And in um, some really warm climates, uh, some producers have added water because the, the the naturally fermented wine is just too strong. And actually, there there have been very, very few. And then there are additives, you know, the sort of additives that you see on your food labels, sort of fresheners and yeast and enzymes and all, you know, tr treatments kind of things. Who are Oh, and some producers add colouring matter which is crazy in a way. Well, if you look at some of the wines, you get like, this is not naturally occurring color. Uh, yeah, sort of strange purple. <laughs> yeah, what's up like with this that? hue? It's like it's like Welch's grape. It's yeah, like a, exactly. It's a weird, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to um, sort of the more industrial wine producers having to specify mm -hmm. on their labels exactly what they've done, yeah. what they've added. Uh. But I admire the people who who add as little as possible and we'll be able to identify them in future. Yeah, that, uh, it's, a, it's a smart uh, position to have. It, it, more transparency, the better. Um, I love your your BBC television work, BBC Four show, the wine program. I caught a bunch of clips on YouTube. Like uh -huh. I found one from 1983 or or the the mid 80s about Merlot that I'm going to link to in the show notes. I like you like hired like you had like you had like helicopters. You had like a budget there. That was a great program. <laughs> they the, it was fun to do, um, and I think it was the world's first TV series about wine. And I keep saying that and no one's challenged me, so I think it <laughs> might, must be true. Keep saying it'll, it'll be true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, it, was, it, was, it was quite groundbreaking because, you know, for instance, the BBC wouldn't touch wine for a while because they thought they'd get a whole load of um, temperance campaigners. Interesting. You know, yeah. Really? But it, that changed. Um, it, uh, in fact, I did quite a big series for the BBC in the, the 90s. And I've just actually hosted um, an online wine course for mm -hmm. BBC, BBC Maestro. My yeah. question with this is how do you get an, a wide audience, like a, like a general, like a public television uh, audience into wine through 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 like a program. It's, it's really, really difficult. Yeah, um, it's hard. Visually, because so little moves with wine. Exactly. I used to wonder why when I was traveling with a film crew, the, the cameraman got so excited when he saw a bottling line. Because for, for us wine writers, it's the most boring thing in the world. But it's because it moves. Yeah. There's a bit of action. Right. Uh, and apart from the wind blowing a vine and people making a barrel, um, you, yes, you could film people tasting, but it, as you Ooh. know from food, it is so difficult. You never want to see anybody swirling a glass. No, that, that I mean, just makes it you is, it's not a spectator sport, is it? It's. You might see some cows in Burgundy or Bordeaux <laughs> yeah. just in the field. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, um, in fact, I think the television series, we did two of them that I'm most proud of, was called Vintner's Tales. And they were just little short 10-minute vignettes about 
really amazing characters in wine. We we slightly call, we our, our informal title for the series was Weirdos in the Wine Trade, but they, they weren't all weird, but they were idiosyncratic and sure. and they were funny. Uh, and you know, it's people. I mean, people stories are, are visual, aren't they? Absolutely, it's a real art to wine writing is adding the people element. Um, I've stories, on, <laughs> stories. I worked on Punch for years with those guys when we were working with them closely, and just trying to get people into the pages is is so important for the general audience. I agree with you fully. Mm. And and I think, you know, I'm often asked about certain regions and countries, how can we get our wines better known? And it's really often a function of the characters and the people. And if if people with big personalities are prepared to travel and, and yeah. talk to people, I mean, think about the the late, much-lamented much Jim Clendenon of Aubon Clima. He was a giant character. He travelled all over the world and yeah. he did so much, not just for his uh, Southern California winery, but for the California wine in general. Let's talk about the Queen, HRH. We can, you can call You're her. Segwaying from Jim Clendenon to the Queen. I, I, that's, I, a, that's an interesting I'm one. Trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to uh, capture the, 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 the kind of size of your uh, your audience in the UK and, and in the US. But you served on, uh, you're a member of the Royal Household Wine Committee, which advises the Queen's cellar. Which uh, is interesting because yes, I do watch The Crown and I and I do think they drink a little bit of wine, you know, up in Buck, Buckingham Palace and all the various Windsor Castle and all those places. So what's this mean? Like, what, were you uh, were you actually doing tastings for for the royal family? Oh, it's ongoing. It's um, of course COVID uh, brought yeah. a bit of tasting to a halt, but normally um, three or four times a year, myself and the other four members of the committee, four or five, who are in the trade, we go into the cellars at Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle um, in response to a tender that's been put out so that we're blind taste a whole load of wines that people want to sell to the royal cellar and decide among ourselves which ones to buy. But they're chiefly for entertaining rather than the royal family individuals. General consumption, yeah. right? So there, a lot of it is for giant receptions. You know, there could be 250 people. And if we choose something that's too expensive, then we get, you know, the press saying, this is shocking. Very interesting because, you know, a state dinner here in the States would, um, everything is political, like every choice, every chef, every every, yeah, yeah. Pour, every every item on that menu is publicized. But what you're saying is kind of the opposite. You're saying you go in and taste blind, you pick the wines that you think taste great, and then you serve them to 500 people at a reception. So how does it how does it not become political if you're picking like a wine from like a, a region that maybe isn't um, I don't know represented by the by the queen? <laughs> well, these big receptions tend to be that the you know it could be everyone in the restaurant business, for instance, and, and they w- the, the wines chosen for them won't be widely reported. The ones that are widely reported are for the state banquets. I was lucky enough to go to one at Windsor Castle for um, Carla Bruni and I always remember her name before. Oh, <laughs> Sarkozy. Oh, the, Sarkozy. Sarkozy, the old yeah, president, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> She's cooler, yeah. just on the record, yeah, much cooler, yeah, um, party guest. And they do report, They, they the press scrutinises minutely the wine is sold, um, not sold, uh, served. served at at those banquets. But funnily enough, they are not chosen by us. They're chosen by the Foreign Office's cellar. 
Got it. So, uh, what's your interaction with the queen? I mean, have you have you had an audience? Have you met her? Uh, I just I say this because our, I think our audience is is obviously fascinated. It's like an endless well of content for America. She is pretty amazing, isn't she? She's incredible. Uh, hey, what a show! Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Crown and her history. Yeah. Like, um, well, I'd, yes, her crown. I, I don't think the Crown is identical to the Queen's life. I would put that on the record. Fair <laughs> enough. I, I I certainly respect that take. I, um, but yes, I was. I she. Um, gave me my honour, my OBE, mm. in 2003. Then I joined the Royal Household Wine Committee in 2005. And then there was one time when we went to taste at Windsor when her equerry, I think, approached us just before we were going into taste and said, the Queen's in residence and she wonders whether you'd like to have lunch with her. <laughs> and so we kind of said, shall we, shall we? And <laughs> Twist my arm, yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, we did. And that was fun. It, there were about... 12 people around the table mm, or something. Mm. Um, but uh, that's the only time. And I, yes, I've been to a reception or two, but much bigger. Wonderful. And a state banquet. But, yeah. Though I, 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 thanks for those memories. I, I really, I hope, I hope she's around forever. I mean, really, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the hope. Um, let's talk about uh, Jancis Robinson tasting, you know, be it a, an Anderson Valley Pinot or White Burgundy. How are you... Uh, uh, running a tasting. I think that's some part of the mystery of what you do is this tasting and how do you decide which wine is better than the other? Mm. Well, I, I participate in so many different sorts of tastings. Got it. And sadly, the Royal Household ones are some of the few that I can do blind. I love blind tasting, but blind tasting requires A and other or others to set it up for you and, you know, number the bottles and unmask them and all that and serve you and all that sort of thing so that's quite rare um normally i mean london is a fabulous place as a wine writer because we're at a bit of a crossroads of the world of wine exporters tend to come to us you could go to four tastings a day in the sort of height of the season really in london so i try and go to as many interesting tastings um trade tastings as the, uh, there are but they're very very rarely blind um, then during lockdown, of course, I couldn't go to the wine, so the wine came to me, and I was taste I, tasting masses of wine at home, which was nice because it meant I could linger over the wine. I could see what it was like with food, visit it the next day. You know, you can't do that at a crowded trade tasting. Uh, what else do I do? Um, sometimes people will will organise a blind tasting, but um, and then of course going to the regions and and then tasting. With a producer in situ. in situ in in on the scene, and I think you know when you get to t speak with a producer and do a portfolio tasting in a, in a region like Rioja or like Vina Verde or wherever it may California, that's got to give you an extra level of excitement. It's great. I mean, it is as I discovered during lockdown, difficult to write about a region if you haven't visited it. And, you know, that's why, for instance, these great big wine fairs aren't really of interest to wine writers because you need to see the producers in situ. But I think as long as you've been to a region once, it it makes a huge difference. And now that travel or recently has travel has been more difficult, um, I, I felt quite confident about writing about wines I was tasting at home, but from a region that I had visited or from someone that I was, I spoke to or, you know, was communicating with. Isn't there, there's like nothing better when the winemaker makes you lunch. I mean, that, they, they <laughs> kind of like, I know you're a professional, so you can't be like clouded by this. But when like, you're like outside at a, at a wood table. Oh, been outside. There. Come on. The, I mean, I mean, we Brits love eating outside. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Uh, we, under a vine shaded terrace. I mean, perfect. 
it, it, it's truly uh, the magic of going to a winery and having some food. I mean, or it could be like in a big setting too. It doesn't have to be like outside in like a little winery. It could be in like a large place in Napa, but it's still like having the wine with food. My question is, is in terms of um, your travels, um, is there a region that you think the wine and the food lives in harmony mm. in like the best way? This is a tough question. Yeah, well, I think generally you know, over time, the food has evolved to to be a natural partner for the, the local wine. Although I think I would I would hi- um, highlight Piemonte perhaps as just having fabulous fabulous food and fabulous fabulous wines that do go together. Um, and I suppose there are sort of classics, you know, like the sort of soft goat's cheese and Sancerre and things like that. Um, Mendoza, the big hearty Malbecs with a kind of you know, an asado. Mm, the beef grilled yeah, out, out yeah, in the... Out in yeah. the uh, and I've open. never, ever, I've yet to have a chimichurri sauce that's as good as anything you can get in Argentina. I don't know what the the magic ingredient is. Probably beef fat. Maybe. I think you put well, beef fat I into it. I don't know, because no? it's, it's, it's kind of herbs and yeah. and, and vinegar, I think. Um, I think there is that little bit of, they put something in, in, in this, I've never been to Argentina, but I think they put a little, I mean, because those herbs grow great in around the world. And yeah. Maybe the vinegar from the wine. Mm, don't know. Anyway. I, I love, I love uh, that you went all over the globe. I guess is there a is there a, a region that you think is is emerging in terms of uh, the food and the wine coming together that you wanted to you know marinate on a little bit? I think uh, Greece would be a, an obvious uh, example, and because um, great, really great wines and very very particular food there, and of course because the climate is so dry, the flavors tend to be very strong, very strongly accentuated. Great call. I want to know for, you know, our listeners, we're all home cooks here and we're all we're all entertainers in some way. We might not entertain a lot, but at least once a year we're entertaining. And I wanted to know, you know, what, you know, I've got this, these bottles of wine, you know, I've got like a couple wines. I'm not even going to say what type of wine. I'm just going to say I have a couple wines to serve. What is a great dish that you can serve that won't like blow out your palate and like that will let the wine speak. Say you've spent a little bit of money on this wine, but you want to serve it with some food. I think a big mistake we make is is we add flavors to the the canapes or the first course that just absolutely destroy us. Um, so is there some way that to get us to enjoy the wine and have a nice bite too? Is is your scenario people aren't yet at the table? Yes, the good question. Like course correction, we're going to call these canapes or, or appetizers or d'oeuvres wherever you're from and whatever you call okay, them. Right. Um, well, it sounds very boring, but if they're good enough quality, and I think maybe I'm being too picky, but you know, if if you're handing around, you know, there's four different kinds of cheese plus some charcuterie plus some olive, it's very fiddly, and and maybe in an early part of an evening. You actually just want people to relax a bit and and put something in their mouths. So, really, really high quality nuts, sort of spiced nuts, well, not too heavily spiced nuts, but sort of salted nuts or or little cheese biscuits. There's a Sally Clark is a, a sort of Alice Waters protege with the lovely Clark's restaurant in London. Yeah, and she makes these just gorgeously rich cheese shortbreads. You know, um, that slightly slightly crumble in the mouth, but not in hand. Uh, she she's, has a tendency to make them too spicy for wine. So, mm-hmm. in fact, we had a big party quite recently and I ordered a whole load of those cheese shortbread, specifically asking Sally not to put 
too much spice in them, and she didn't get the she, she didn't get, get the, the memo. Drift. And, and she's got Jancis Robinson <laughs> bringing in over wines, and, and she's gonna like bring some curry powder in there and blow out her. <laughs> I love that pick because I think I, we have Parmesan uh, shortbread on taste, and I'm, I'll, I'll link to a, a recipe in our oh, show good. notes that because sounds perfect. I think that's a really really smart uh, decision. I, I do agree that when you have like four cheeses and they're beautiful cheeses yeah. and maybe some sapersata, it gets too fiddly. Yeah, to quote yeah. you. Let's talk about a flavor, a wonderful flavor, potentially the best flavor, but a flavor to absolutely avoid uh-huh. when uh, trying to accentuate wine. I think most, there aren't that many things yeah. that really kill wine, but too much chili yep. just kind of puts heat. your heat. You know, your palate is on fire and just can't taste anything. So that would be a problem. And um, globe artichokes. Uh, there's this funny thing happens in your mm-hmm. mouth that you're not really tasting things as you should uh, immediately after eating a globe artichoke leaf. Those are uh, in good choices. I mean, I, I like that. My my two are black pepper. I think when you like, if you're trying to pair one with cacio pepe, to me that is so impossible. It just blows me out my That's palate. funny because the, Tim Hanai, who's a fellow master of wine, who researched quite a lot of mm-hmm. the whole such taste thing, he, for a long time, ad- positively advocated adding black pepper to, I think he said it, I sent it. if you had something that had a lot of tannin in it, the chewy thing mm. in young red wine, it made it less obvious. I think that was it. But I, I know you said that Tim's his name? Tim Hanai, H-A-N-N-I. I'm not going to dispute Tim. I feel, I feel Tim knows what he's talking about. I'm just a guy, and I, I well, he that interestingly, he no longer drinks at all. Yeah, either. yeah. But, but he did do a lot of research. That's all I'm saying. Uh, my other one is citrus. I think citrus, like if you're if you're doing a citrus salad, it's just so hard. Yeah, it is, especially especially, yes, citrus acidity. As I think vinegar is not is as um, much of a problem. If vinegar is less. I mean, a nice vinegar. I mean, salad and a, a white crisp wine so great together um i'm gonna go a little lightning round here because i know this could we could we could marinate for a while on these topics but i mean oh i can't believe i wrote this down it is <laughs> the most underrated wine region Jansis. i mentioned greece i think portugal is a very obvious candidate it's having trouble getting the prices it deserves and what i love about both greece and portugal is that they have this massive array of indigenous grape varieties which each of which have strong characters and uh, provide us with so many different tastes from the usual diet of cabernet merlot chardonnay Mm -hmm. sauvignon um and and portugal also has a, a range of amazing terroirs as well so portugal should be high on everybody's list along with greece south africa is wildly underappreciated here in the us not so much in the uk but there is this new wave of wonderfully competent winemakers mm-hmm. discovering old vines um doing their best to coax really interesting wines out of them uh, that are again unlike the kind of you know norm if you like uh so I, I would pick those what am i mentioned three yeah as my my leading um places Love to I, back to portugal are we talking like doro red yeah doro and doro whites now no, white because they're doro. getting very good at identifying the best bits of the doro for white wine mm-hmm. you know higher elevations and things like that and they've got lovely great varieties alentejo is doing some mm. great stuff down 
Mm. Um, and cool pronunciation. Down. <laughs> Dang <Dangling>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, and Vino Verde. Um, no, honestly, I, I, you. I, and Portugal makes some stunningly good value wine. Oh my God, Vino Verde. I, went, I had a producer called Afros once mm-hmm. that was insanely crisp and just felt like a Vino Verde is like the, too cheap. Like, yeah, n- ridiculous. Too, yeah. And, and we, you know, initially we were taught it's called green wine and it's for drinking very, very young. Right. But actually, some of them now are aging beautifully. Yeah, I love those regions. I want to know uh, then, okay, let's go to the other side of the coin. Is there an overrated region that you're maybe spending? You're, you're, there's a little bit of a tax because like the, the like, are we, are we talking like Napa? I'm just like, I'm not leading the witness, but I'm <laughs> like, are there overpriced, overpriced oh, yes. wines oh, yes. from are, certain regions? Uh, there are hundreds of overpriced wines, but they're the ones that billionaires are chasing. Yeah. Um, I think the Burgundians can't believe what's happened to their prices. Thanks to this, you know, each wine produced is only produced in small quantities. The number of billionaires is rising rapidly. The proportion of them getting into wine is also rising. So that there's just a kind of inflationary spiral there. Yeah. Um, and same is true of the really top Bordeaux as well. Mm-hmm. Those two regions, I mean, it is the crashing of of commerce and just like millennial uh, billionaires. Literally, there are hundreds of them out there who are finally getting into wine. And and a lot of Asian, there's a lot of Asian interest in, yeah. in wine, people with very deep pockets deep there pockets. too. Yeah. Um, you know, is there a, one producer? I, 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 I say this for our audience because like it's tough to go shallow but with you in, in the audience, but I appreciate this. Is there a producer that we should seek out that just is a great value or just an interesting producer? I would say not leaving South Africa behind. The leading member of the South African New Wave producers is called Eben Saadi, S for sugar, A-D-I-E. And his... Um, label is Saadi family mm. and he he's admirable he's a, he's just the sort of person I was talking about earlier who travels and and inspires people and makes people think South Africa is a great wine producer always evolving uh, really worried about climate change so he's gone through the huge hoops of getting new grape varieties through quarantine and planting them because he realizes that he's got to have Mediterranean grape varieties can, that can withstand really hot, dry summers. Because things are changing Cape Town are changing and that, I mean, no everywhere. water in South that, Africa, Yeah, Cape yeah. Town's had terrible drought. Um, and he has t- two top wines, a white called Palladius, beginning with P for Peter, and a red called Columella, um, sort of, you know, classical names. And they're both blends, which change every year. Um, and really serious wine made with a um, huge amount of integrity. They're not discoveries in the sense that, you know, they're, 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 they're not $100 a bottle, but they're, they're 70 or They can be north like of that. 50 which is a price point for some. <laughs> yeah. But still, it's Sardis, you said? Sardi family. Great, Sardi yeah. family. Yeah. So we've gone, we've gone a, a while, and I haven't brought up natural wine. Like, and I intended Although we did, nearly got there when we were talking about additives. We did, and then like this low-intervention wine movement, <laughs> yeah. we were talking about additives, and I, I, I had a little restraint. I was like, let's not go there. <laughs> Chances, I mean, this is the number one topic that I think our listeners are, are interested in talk, hearing about is like the idea of the natural wine movement. So I'm not going to even lead and and say like I even give you I'm not going to give you a specific question. I'm going to say tell us what we should know about natural wine right now. <laughs> Can I tell you what I think about natural? wine I think right that's now. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> what do you think about natural wine? <laughs> can't believe I, I asked that. Wow. <laughs> um, 
obviously I'm from kind of more, you know, I've been writing about wine for 45 years or more. So I'm from the kind of traditional, um, what they would call conventional wine uh, world. And what's distressed me is that quite a lot of my peers tasted one or two of the early natural wines, which a lot of them were faulty, technically faulty. And they just sort of used that as an excuse to write off the whole natural wine movement. And now I'm never, never going to drink natural wine. Then the other thing that distresses me is go into a certain sort of Paris wine bar, especially in the northeast of Paris, mm. and you can't get a glass of wine without being subjected to a sermon, a lecture mm. about how evil all non-natural wine is. And I don't like I don't like the polarization that the natural wine movement has engendered, even though it didn't. So you're seeing like a place like Vervolet that that specializes in natural wine, Canal St. Martin, you're going to get a lecture about we're the only way to go. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I, and yet over time, I'm finding more and more good, the the proportion of good natural wine is increasing. So all these people who are just writing it off, I think, are cutting off their own noses to spite their faces sort of thing. And also there's an awful lot of wine that doesn't sell itself on the basis of being natural, but actually is, but it, it has qualities sufficient to, to sell itself without leaning on mm-hmm. the natural. I mean, I'm thinking of something even like Chateau Latour in Bordeaux, very famous, very expensive so wine. Yeah. Um, but to all intents and purposes, it's it's pretty much a natural wine, but they'd never, you know, say... We're part of the kind of uh, sandal-wearing beard, you know, bearded um, movement. <laughs> um, so I think it's exciting that the conventional wine world has been challenged, and that a whole slew of potential new wine drinkers is much more interested in natural wine than conventional. It's like wine. Dan Barber saying he has an organic vegetable on his yeah. menu. It's like yeah. like Chateau Latour is saying they're just not going to say it. No. They're just going to yeah. like let yes. it present yeah. itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think my in my ideal world, the the conventional camp, it, it, the conventional camp is definitely using fewer and fewer additives every year. There's no doubt about that. Then the the proportion of organically grown wine and biodynamically grown wine is is increasing. So they're moving more to a kind of natural. Um, position. Um, and I would love to see the two camps kind of in the, it's kind of not going to happen overnight, but the coinciding more. So we don't have these two camps that are inimical. That I love that, uh, that point of view. And I think one last question about natural wine. There's this perception from like the lay wine drink that there's like a flavor profile for natural wines. Like the, you drink a dirty and rowdy bottle and mm-hmm. it's like, turnt i mean whatever i'm not a wine guy but i've had some bottles that are like wow this does not taste like wine how do you respond to like people writing that there's a flavor profile that's like somehow like a little off or turnt or i don't know effervescent i don't know what the word is but i suppose um i would then maybe give them make, uh, say why don't you have a lovely you know lapierre beaujolais that will taste taste mainstream to you, mm-hmm. but will actually be natural. Great response. I mean, it's it's exactly like it, it is a great wine that happens to be a natural wine. Mm. Um, I have a few more questions. I wanted to hear a little bit about, uh, we talk about food media here. We have journalists and writers and editors on often. And I wanted to hear about your website. You've recently sold the website. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know 
Um, that probably took a lot of there's probably a lot of mixed emotions. But how do you do that? Like you use you, your name. It's like a dot com with your name. JazzRobinson.com. Like, there you go. Yes, Let's plug it. Yes. Yeah. So what does that mean when you sell it? And what's the how do we enjoy what you're doing right now online? Well, I'm still very, very much there. And, hope in so. Fact, writing my, I'm I'm working my fingers to the bone, doing far too much on it still. Um, and so I had I had five reasons to sell. Um, one was that I wanted more people to know about it, and I haven't got a marketing bone in my body, so I, <laughs> I needed a kind of nice big company that could do that. Mm-hmm. And I I also felt that the US was the obvious place to to find a, a new owner. Um, because we're pretty saturated in the, in the UK, and we only had about a third of uh, members mm. who are American, and I'm sure it could be. A, mm. a it's a membership board. program. It's about third of the articles are free, mm-hmm. but the two thirds you have to be a member behind the paywall, if you like. So it's a subscription only website. Um, I wanted a future for it that would, but would allow me to concentrate on what I enjoy doing, which is writing and tasting, and not be hassling with the kind of EU VAT forms and th- yeah. uh, things like yeah. that. Um, and um, I wanted to sort of keep its its values and all that kind of thing. So, and tech, I mean, you know, you need a big, this is a tech, it's a digital, digital Product, publisher, yeah, re- yeah. Recurrent Ventures. And they have, um, uh, I don't know, 27 or something, various websites, including Saveur, in fact, the, you know, the website of mm-hmm. the old, print um, food magazine. And so it just seemed like a, a great fit, really. Smart. It's great to, to, to partner with a larger publisher that can work on the tech. And you've hired Elaine Shukin-Brown, I hope I pronounced yes. that correctly. And she's your top North uh, editor, North American editor. Um, and she comes from an indigenous background. She's, an she's in, Alaskan. Alaskan. She's Alaskan, yeah. Um, I think that that point I wanted to ask you about is, is really important. And I think, you know, we're trying to hire with diversity of mind and, and get really a variety of point of view. So mm. so what's her work like? And maybe we'll have her on the podcast. At yeah, some point. I hope you we should. Can. Definitely Absolutely. Should. She's, she's very, very articulate. Um, and obviously, she's there to develop the American coverage, uh, because it's not so easy to do that from London, really. You need yeah. that when we've also got um, Samantha Cole Johnson, she's spe- specializing in the Pacific Northwest. She's an Oregonian. So we are very much beefing up the coverage of of American wine, and both Elaine and I have been have really taken quite a stand on the whole diversity mm-hmm. widening of you know it is when I think back to not very many years how irredeemably white the whole wine world was, and it is moving, it is changing, it is widening, uh, but we've got to keep at it and and you know make sure that it's not just a, a short term thing that we run these competitions and we give these scholarships and all the rest. But uh, the more it is, it's going in the right direction. I agree. I have to uh, give a plug to punchdrink.com. My, my former colleague and friend, Talia Bayoki and what she's doing there. Yeah. With, uh, diversity in mind. She's got yeah. incredible writers from that, that not from that white yeah, male, yeah. mostly male point of view. Yeah. Cause it was also a boys club too, right? For years. It was, although to be honest, I just, you know, got on with it. Um, yeah, sure. But but no, I suppose it was actually in in Britain. We always we, I was by no means the first female wine writer. Mm-hmm. We always had quite a lot of female wine writers. Okay, but we have uh, last week. Um, there's one nice little 
new ring development, I went to the London premiere of a lovely new film called Blind Ambition, mm -hmm. which is about these four Zimbabwean refugees who crossed into South Africa and were gardeners and things like that. And they rose, they were all male, I'm afraid, but they all rose to be the sommeliers of the four top Cape Town um, restaurants and then put a Zimbabwean team into the World Wine Tasting Championships. Wow. So that was a, that's a great story. Yeah. And I knew it was a great story. So I, I, I emailed everyone I could think of who might film it. And finally, um, an Australian team who'd already made one good film about the Chinese falling in love with wine mm -hmm. got. And I think it came out, it, its first debut was at the Tribeca Film Festival here. Yeah, I saw it mentioned for Tribeca. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it was the audience favourite of the festival. That's one. It's called yeah. Blind Ambition. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to that. Two more questions. First off, um, you know, I want to get your take. If you're giving the keynote at the CIA, Culinary Institute of America, to a bunch of wine professionals, you know, the next generation of wine professionals, these are the the wine, the sommeliers, the uh, the wine managers, the, the buyers of these restaurants and maybe even wine shops. What are you, what's the message for the next generation of wine professional? I would say develop your own taste and stick to it, follow it. Don't look at what other people think. Taste has to be subjective and carve your own way um, and be, be true to yourself. Great. That's great words. I think I think we do f in food and in wine. We we follow. We we feel like we have to fit into a trends certain mold. and trends are just like we have to write in a certain way and s speak in a certain way. But certainly that's not the that the case. You, that's not how you operated your life as a writer. No, certainly not. Um, and I'm thinking here of K Jamie Oliver, for instance. Um, it was quite funny when he started off. And it was a huge success in the UK, you know, initially called The Naked Chef. I think. Oh, yeah. We had him on the podcast maybe six months ago. Yeah, yeah. Great, yeah and lovely great guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, of course, everyone was going around at that stage saying, who's the Jamie Oliver of wine? <laughs> but the, it's crazy. You, you, you shouldn't be the, the ex, you know, a copy of somebody else. You've got to be yourself. Be your own person. We, we ask all guests in the Taste Podcast, if there was a dream book project that you could work on without the burden of time, meaning you'd have unlimited, no deadline, unlimited time, or the burden of budget, meaning you'd have unlimited funds, what would that book project be? I know exactly. Um, way back, was it about 89? Can't remember. Um, I published, I wrote a book called Vintage Time Charts. A publisher asked me to chart how different vintages of very famous wines, sort of you know, um, archetypal wines, evolved. And so it was literally a series of graphs, a, a line for each vintage of Latache, for instance, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, I'd love to do that again at my own pace. At and your own so, pace, yeah. no deadline. <laughs> so you could be like a 20-year project. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I hope you can do that. <laughs> Chances Robinson, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Talia Bayoki, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm so happy to see you. My God, we worked together for several years. You brought me back in the building. It's been since uh, 2019. So it's uh, that lobby has not changed. Nope. Maybe some books have changed, but the lobby looks the same. It's nice and comforting. Oh, the books have probably not changed either. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to have you on just to talk about Punch and all the great work you've been doing there and just in general, your career in cookbooks and, and just in media. I, I, I just, we were friends well before we worked together at Punch and I just, love your taste. You have a great 
view of the food world. Thank so. you. That's really nice. And uh, one big part of working with you is just coming in in the morning and talking about what we what we cooked or where we ate the night before. It was just such a joy to hear you and Chloe and Lizzie and Anna and Tatiana, all of us came together and we're chit-chatting about what we did. So I have to start. Where have you been recently, restaurant-wise? In New York City, you're such a voracious restaurant goer. I know you could be a restaurant critic if you sh- wanted to, if you ever wanted to enter that, because you just have great taste. What's been good? What's been not good? Well, in the spirit of of the old office chatter, yeah. I'll tell you where I was last night, which sure. is at Raul's, um, oh. which I've actually been <gasps> to twice in the last two weeks. And, you know, it's always like a wait. If you don't have a reservation, it's tough to get a reservation. you got to, like, get online at midnight two weeks out. Um, but it's like one of those restaurants that is just so perfectly New York that you really couldn't imagine anywhere else. And like the food is better than it needs mm-hmm. to be. I actually think it's the be- best. If you're ever craving like steak up poivre, it's the place to be. They make a great non-pretentious martini. <laughs> like pretty much any classic that you order there, like everything is free poured. No one's jiggering anything. But like the drink arrives. It's the right temperature. It's delicious. It's the playlist is always like Signed perfectly like Gen X. I'm not even Gen yeah. X, but like I appreciate it. Um, and the scene is always just this like perfect mix of New Yorkers. It feels just like yeah. that place couldn't exist anywhere else. So I was there last night, uh, sat at the bar, had a steak up poivre, yeah. ran into a couple of people I haven't seen in a long time. It's like always that industry yeah. spot. Is that well. Village or West Village? What do you call it? Uh, West Village. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, definitely it's on Prince, West Village. Like yeah. toward uh, yeah. 6th Avenue. Yeah. Always lo- like neighborhood restaurant. It's always been like locals lo- totally. hanging out there. Yeah. Like last the, the the last time I was there two weeks ago, Cindy Lauper was there. It's yeah. like that kind of place. Nice. Um, so I, I love Raul's. Um, lately, I've really loved Plaza de Fete. Um, mm. I think it's the kind of restaurant that New York has proved to do really yeah. well. Like it's in the same vein as like Four Horsemen, Estella, where it's just like really beautiful high acid cooking and great wine and great cocktails, great vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and focused on seafood, and they do it really well. I love Al Badawi. Mm-hmm. Um, went there recently with a group and really loved it. Um, last week I went to Aval, um, which is in Bushwick, really Not great familiar. Persian restaurant. Um, one of the original chefs from. Sofre. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've been there. Oh, yeah. Sofre. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not a Sofre uh, restaurant, but it's a chef from Sofre. Exactly. Got yeah. It, I it. went and opened his own place and really like delicious food. This is like back in Punch's sort of old stomping grounds off the Morgan stop. Yeah. Um, and what a great office. <laughs> great. I mean, that office was awesome. I like still I missed that that bodega across the yeah. street. Like they had great uh, tripe stew that everybody would get when they yep. came in and they were just a little bit worse for wear. In the a morning. little bit. And great say coffee. <laughs> up the street it's, yeah. it's a good spot yeah totally so i've been i've been loving those spots recently i've loved i've always loved dame i i um yep. like lords i had a great meal at casa mono i hadn't been there mm. in like probably 5 years yeah. and like it's still just like reliable delicious one food. of the most tourist centric restaurants totally. in new york i feel casa mono it's always it's been in guidebooks for like 20 years but still Great. I went there maybe two years. I think during the pandemic, I went there actually. So it was really solid. Yeah. Um, great list. Yeah. So My that's God. kind of where I've been. Thank uh, you for recently. coming to play. <laughs> Talia came to play. Um, and another part about like these morning catch ups or Slack channels if we weren't in the office was like cooking because, you know, we collaborated on Taste. You were an editor at Taste and we collaborated um, on so many great stories. But I, I just loved getting your take on home cooking. Um, I love talking, talking about fish cooking. You are just like the most passionate fish love cook. To cook fish, yeah. I mean, what's your new passion? I haven't like caught up with you in a while. Is there something that you're making right now that you just love that you feel like um, is a sign of you? 
Uh, well, you know, I've um, been making, I'm like in a very much in like a, a stew zone, which is nice. generally where I get like sort of around this time of year. But I've been making a lot. I've been cooking a lot of Mexican food, got a tortilla press, been kind of doing that. And um, I, I do a lot of chili verde, chicken and pork chili verde, nice. chili colorado, chili con carne, um, chicken tinga, stuff You're just like making that. tortillas from fresh masa? Yeah, yeah. How, how are, you, are you doing like Just instant? water. It's just yeah. like masa harina and, yep. and water. Um, and it's super easy easy and quick and been loving that and just freezing tons of it. So yeah. I've just been like in a bulk cooking mode and I, <laughs> I'm just loading myself up for the sort of dead of winter. And I've been doing a lot yeah. of that. I've been making a lot of um, citrus salads lately too. And some of it inspired almost every time I, I go to Zuni uh, mm-hmm. in San Francisco, I like sort of walk away with like some way to incorporate winter citrus or oh, winter yeah. fruit into a salad. And I'm not a big fruit eater. And like having a way to eat fruit in a savory sort of through a savory mm-hmm. lens is like always fun for me. So I've been doing like some persimmon, burrata, pomegranate stuff. I like that. That yeah. so burrata is the kind of bringing in the creamy savory element. Um, is it like low acid or high acid in the vinaigrette? Pretty high acid, yeah. especially with like getting the pomegranate in there yeah. and then really good olive oil. Yeah. Um, there was a salad I had at Zuni maybe two years ago that was just winter citrus, brown butter, and toasted hazelnuts. Like mm-hmm. that is it. Just cut really oh, thin man. and it's perfect. And yeah. I go, I find myself like going back to that as well. Um, but a lot of a lot of stews, still eating a lot of fish, still yeah. cooking a lot of fish. Still cooking a lot of fish. <laughs> the um, occasional whole rabbit gets roasted. Oh, that's right. You had a rabbit face for a while. A big rabbit face. Yeah. That's like, you know, you can do a whole rabbit. Underrated what, um, protein for home. Totally. It's pretty easy to break down. Like there's a lot on YouTube and then whatever you don't eat, you turn it into a ragu. Yeah. Like, what is it about rabbit meat? Because it is quite clean. It doesn't have like too much game in it. But why do you like cooking with it? I, You know what? Part of it is this I love rabbit ribs. So when you cook a whole rabbit, and this is something, this goes back to like a dish I had like forever ago in um, a place called Paco Morago in, in Barcelona. Oh, Paco Morago, that uh, the egg uh, yep. That fermented Famous. egg. Yeah, yep. so good. And they do this, they had this little like, you know, terracotta, um, like a sizzling sort of, almost the way they do like gamba saijo. Yeah. Um, but they did just rabbit ribs that were basically like Frenched rabbit ribs that then had like a little medallion at the end of it. And I literally went back there and ordered two orders two times <laughs> when I was there. And, and I love eating rabbit ribs. So even when you roast a whole rabbit, there's just so much flavor yeah. contained in that in that bit, even those like sort of those like the the flaps that kind of go over the ribs, really flavorful. Yeah. To me, it's like it's hard to cook because it is so lean, but there's a ton of flavor packed into that. It's true. And, and it's and, versatile. And you can buy it pretty easily. Takes to marinades well. Like it's a yeah. great it's a great protein. Yeah, rabbit. Um, the egg carpaccio at Paco Morago. Think about that dish. Pretty sustainable. Oh, yeah. Rabbit. You know? Absolutely. Um, you had a Finsta or maybe not quite a Finsta, but like a semi-anonymous um, – <laughs> Frittata Finsta. Yeah. What is it about the frittata that made you create an account back in the day? And I will link to it in the show notes most certainly. Honestly, like the the versatility of the frittata and the way it allows you, it's like fridge clean out. Yeah. The things that I have put into frittata, some of it works, some of it doesn't. But to me, it's always just been like my go-to. I don't have too much time. I have a lot of random stuff in my fridge. I'm going to put it into a frittata. Yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, I sort of like fell in love with making them and and like testing the limits of the frittata, mm-hmm. um, which is what that that Instagram account was all about. It was really cute. And I, I will link to it. Is it a cast iron? Is it a stainless steel? What's the pan for a frittata? Oh, well, I kind of have gone down a lot of different paths with the frittata, yeah. but I'm really into now nonstick. I just go yeah. straight nonstick. But the the satisfaction of <laughs> sliding a, fr- a whole frittata yeah. out of a pan and onto a plate is you got to use nonstick for, for eggs. Nonstick. For eggs. I mean, it's you're, you're just like, you know, causing a lot of pain in your life if you're using like cast iron for eggs. People yeah. I, I mean, look, I would love to be that person, but my cast <laughs> irons are never seasoned properly. Never. And so like it's no matter what I do, like it's sticking. We did a sheet pan frittata story. I remember oh, yeah? we worked on that that one time. Loved that. Done a few of those in my day. <laughs> also does stick a little bit. And it you, does. So you really got to go for the like the nonstick. Nonstick always. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about punch and it's it's such a joy to read. And and first familiarize our audience, um, you know, what punch does and strives for. Um, and also the second part is um, now that you're you're like linked up with Eater, a sister publication, you just put out this amazing package about where to drink in 2023. So but first of all, what is punch? Uh, well, um, it's funny because like it's been almost ten years. Going to be t- Punch's ten year anniversary coming up at, in October of twenty twenty three. Oh my is gosh! You sent those zines about. out. Yeah, you know maybe that's in on the horizon as well, like <gasps> a, a zine redux. A ten year uh, anniversary handwritten handstone zine. Yeah, no, I, I, I. But the the thing about like sort of an impending anniversary is like that you start to think about what it is that it was originally and how close is it to the thing that it was originally and and. I think we've stayed pretty true to the mission, which is really like telling great stories about drinks and drinking culture, helping people drink smarter, but also like, you know, coming at it in a way that is both like sort of, uh, you know, not scholarly, Mm -hmm. um, but we're always trying to like answer the bigger question, but like there is no topic that is sort of beneath us. So like even when it comes to like, I don't know, the blowjob shot, we're not above telling a story about that. We're just going to ask a question that's like the unlikely question about it. And there's always like a bigger story there. So for us, it's like sort of trying to capture like the joy and also the thing that's culturally important about going out and grabbing a drink. Yeah. I mean, it is the center of many folks' lives and drinker or not, you still are, are aware of, well, you know, the, the, the beer and wine scene or the cocktail scene. Um, what I always liked about Punch as a, as a reader and as a former staff member was that you were absolutely allergic to the fratty nature of drinks content, which at the time was pretty much all drinks content before you launched was like all about, um, you know, bar uh, games and lots of uh, where to drink like X amount of drinks in an hour. But you were allergic to that. And I want to like get into um, it's almost like 90s music, right? This is a comparison I draw. Like you, you are covering the cocktail scene um, with in a way that's similar to like journalists were covering like music in the 90s. There's like this like subculture within drinks that you love to cover so rigorously. Mm-hmm. Well, I think too, like we punch came up at a time where like craft beer and craft cocktails were still kind of like not yet even peaking. And um, both of those cultures did feel very male dominated, I think, at the outset. The cocktail renaissance being like when you think of that, you think of this sort of like dark, moody, speakeasy, a bartender and suspenders, like all of these like cliches that we now realize are outdated. But at that time, those were still sort of some of the dominant tropes in drinking culture, craft beer obviously being sort of the, and we did a story about kind of the evolution of the IPA as a way to look at like the evolution 
production of, of beer culture as a whole. And at that time, it was still very much like at the tail end of this like West Coast IPA, like the IBU Wars and mm-hmm. this kind of like very like metalhead, like skull crusher, like that <laughs> kind of vibe and drinks. And so for us, like we really wanted to take a left turn and be able to cover that, but cover that in a way that felt more inclusive. And also to, you know, say that this isn't the only sort of aesthetic in drinking Mm -hmm. and things were changing really rapidly. All of these drink, um, these, you know, beer, wine, spirits, cocktails, those were all things that were typically covered separately. And you had like specialists, like the whiskey advocate that would be covering whiskey, you know, and, um, you know, craft beer specialists. And our sort of, our, our mission in the beginning was to say, well, these things are actually like more connected than we think they are mm-hmm. and more connected than most publications are giving them credit for being. And if we can kind of look at these things all together, what can we learn about them that we wouldn't be able to if we just looked at them separately? Yeah. Back to that package you 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 just published with Eater um, in concert with Eater's Where to Eat in 2023, you had a Where to Drink. And I feel like you and your staff made some calls, like you made some really interesting choices. So for our audience, where are you suggesting we drink in terms of the cities in the world? This was so hard. And this is such a great, <laughs> this was such great fun for us yeah. because we got to take an existing um, sort of rubric that Eater had established and had done so well and like do it actually for us on a smaller scale. So we even made it, you know, Eater did 11 cities. We said, okay, well, let's do five. Can we do five? So um, we went out to like a big group of writers and we asked them, hey, like, what about your city do you think should be on this? Like, what makes this city relevant? Why should we go there in 23, not just in general? So we got a lot of compelling answers back. And um, for us, like we zeroed in on these five cities because all of them told a story that feels very much of this moment coming out of the pandemic. Cities that really felt like they were in transition in oh, a way. Oh, cool. That was a, that was a real, like, moment, like, the transition, like, growth or change within these cities, yeah. Yeah, and that and that feeling of being able to go to a place and kind of feel that it is not fixed, mm-hmm. that it is sort of, like, a little bit frenetic, a little bit, like, you know, there's some tension there between old and new, and so all of these places sort of have that. Um, one that I was most excited about that I think that, that um, is near and dear to you is Madison, Wisconsin, Um, which is a place that, like, you know, when you look at the entire U.S., there are a lot of places that feel obvious that you could say, like, that would be great places to drink right now. Yeah, Houston, San Francisco, always on the list. Sure, all of that. Like, New Orleans, Orleans, like, you know, Charleston, like, all these places Mm -hmm. that people shout out as drinking cities. But Madison is a great example of a place that is this collision of old and new, this place that is a college drinking town, has all these old you know, Midwestern traditions, these supper clubs, ice cream cocktails, you know, the the Wisconsin old-fashioned, yeah. like this tradition of taking Ingostura shots, like all of these really cool things that feel very much of that place. And then this influx of talent that is from Madison mm-hmm. went out, went and worked on all these big markets, came back and is sort of reimagining some of these things through a, a more global or national lens. Yeah. I mean, Jim Meehan, who's not even in the package, he <clears throat> started his career there, but you've got like Brian Bartels, you've got like wonderful uh, dives or or old old man drinking bars and great talent there. I love that. What's another city you pointed out? For me, it's like hard because everyone's like, okay, of those five cities, like what are the two? Like what's the top I know, of your list? I know. It, like, it, just give me one other one. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I mean, Madison is definitely at the top of my list. Yeah. Um, Buenos Aires, yeah. like really cool city. So much going on. Obviously, all of this sort of European drinking traditions, aperitivo culture, and then the way in yeah. which that place has made those traditions its own. 
Um, and some homegrown cool cocktails, the Clorito, yeah. this, you know, Buenos Aires's martini, the yeah. Buenos Aires style old fashioned, like a lot, the wine culture there. Part of what's interesting to me is like Argentina and South America sort of lagged behind Chile, for instance, in its natural wine movement. Interesting. That's all happening there now. And a lot of those wines aren't even getting to us yet. So mm-hmm. like you go to Buenos Aires and you can go to these natural wine bars and drink these wines from, you know, in and around Buenos Aires. Speaking of natural wine, you are such an astute observer of the wine industry. You came up as a wine professional before your journalism career. And um, I wanted to, I'll link to this in the show notes. Jordan Michaelman wrote a cool piece for BA and uh, had him on the show to talk about it. And I wanted to get your take on um, natural wine. Is it losing its cool? I have some thoughts on the piece, but I wanted you to start um, about the natural wine movement right now, um, the challenges it may be facing, especially with like public perception. Hashtag Natty Wine is a real movement, but it kind of under undersells what's really happening. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, this is like such a familiar being a music geek. Like this is such a familiar story is like, you know, the band that you want people to pay attention to and is finally everyone pays attention and understands why they're good. And then everyone's upset that like the band is successful. Right. And so this is sort of this moment in natural wine, but it's really complicated because I think that most people that you would talk to that were champions, early champions of natural wine, like the whole reason they wanted these wines to become bigger than they were. They wanted these Mm -hmm. wines to become more mainstream because it was about great farming. It was about what was good for the planet. It was about what was making making wines that were actually more reflective of their place um, that didn't really before have like a Mm -hmm. big market share. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, those wines get their market share. And there are some things that are disappointing about that because you see like abuses of the natural wine moniker. You try, you start to see people who see that this is big business, that this is culturally relevant and that are making wines that don't necessarily, that don't deserve to be called natural, Mm -hmm. but they're sort of imitators. So that's, that's a natural thing that ends up happening when someone realizes a commercial value of a thing. So I think that's the 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 this like this tension in natural wine right now where it's like you want these wines to be more culturally relevant because that's good for the planet. It's good for wine. It's good for the things that like that all of us care about. But then there's the other side of this is we live in a capitalist yeah. society. And they're all gonna take they're gonna take like just a little bit of uh, a marketing a marketing uh, point or a bullet point and, and just push it out in, in ways that feel super uncomfortable. And I think like the the way the, the the moniker has been, um, you know, scandalized really through the industry. It's bad. Well, it's and it's hard to then be like promoting and then trying to protect the thing yeah. at the same time. And then what that ends up looking like a lot of times is gatekeeping. And you're saying, yeah. okay, well, I know you might like like this wine because you saw like there's then becomes you have to like qualify yourself as being worthy mm-hmm. of like drinking the wines and knowing enough about them so then that starts to happen right and so i think we're starting to see a lot of that natural wine is sort of dealing with some of this issues of class and access that that it was originally rebelling against becoming mm-hmm. part of its own culture and then trying to figure out how to grapple with that it's really interesting. It's really interesting. It's hard to like articulate it in a single conversation. Um, I'll point to um, Alice Firing and Jancis Robinson. I had them both on the show. We talked about it a lot. Um, how are we? How can we be a better wine drinker, I, Talia? I mean, I want to. I want to ask you this. I don't drink myself, but I certainly have wine drinkers in my my life, and it feels like sometimes a blank slate when you're walking into a bottle shop. What should I don't I don't mean like what is the best wine to drink, but how do we how do we just how do we drink better? 
Yeah, I think it's like what's happening to natural wine. It's like, you know, it's not asking what's cool. It's like looking for what's good and then understanding what is good to you, you know? And and that's like, I think this goes back to developing relationships. This is always what, like in the early days when I was learning about wine, like I needed people who knew more than me to help me. And so finding like your wine retailer that you click with that like isn't going to talk down to you that like is has the patience to explain these things and then developing your own taste. Like I think... It takes work. Like, it isn't easy to learn about wine. Like, it's yeah. confusing. It it changes really fast. Mm-hmm. Like, even me, like, I'm not in it in the way that I was originally. I'm not going to all the tastings. I'm not constantly staying up on every vintage. And so, like, even I feel, like, really out of the loop. <laughs> and I have spent, you know, whatever, 15 years drinking yeah. wine and reading about it and loving it. So um, I think it's just like figuring out the way in which you want to have wine in your life and have and look for meaning in that. Yeah. Like, I love that you say it's, it takes work because it, it's it's so true about a lot of elements in, in food culture. Um, it's not just going to be given to you. You have to read. You have to read articles on punch um, and just kind of put in the time to educate yourself and then make those educated decisions. Or you don't and you can still enjoy wine, right? So it's just like, I think it's like getting over this, like, what's cool, what's not? Am I drinking the right thing? Am I drinking the wrong thing? You know, and I think you people can get caught in that and then focus on the wrong stuff. I want to talk to you about NA. Um, it's been really interesting to follow the industry of it. And I think I had John DeBerry on recently, and I'll link to that. Great conversation about the struggles and the kind of failure of, of launching an NA brand, a spirits brand. But um, NA beer, we've talked about a lot on the show. It's like really just getting interesting at, at, at this moment. What are you seeing right now with NA? Oh, my God. It is like I. It, it's really hard to keep track of everything because it's also a market where like you have – like you have like the seed lips, for instance, that are trying to actually be something that is used in a cocktail that like is mimicking in some ways like what you might find in terms of flavor profile. I can't in with a seed spirit. lip. I just I can't. This stuff I've been given gifted it. I just can't with it. It's but it, not, it's ugh. like one one lane, right? Or yeah. you have like liars where it's like here's non-alcoholic whiskey or here's non-alcoholic gin. And then you have this whole other section of the market where they're like functional beverages where you're like, this is adaptogens and <laughs> CBD and I'm just like, what is, and what is the purpose of that? Like, I don't, I get lost in the catch-all of NA mm-hmm. and in what, I think it comes down to like, what are you looking for as a drinker from an NA beverage? Are you looking to replace a cocktail? Are you just look, are you looking for something that is mood altering, but not mood altering in the way that, that alcohol is? So like it, it's basically now like a market that's trying to serve a lot of yeah. different wants. And I'm like, I don't know what where to where like how to categorize yeah. any of this stuff and nobody else does like we're doing we're doing a story right now that is about a whole like emerging category of like apre sport beverages yeah that you're like supposed to now drink after you play tennis and like that is like you know, post-workout post-workout like, but, but, like, but like be better post-workout drinks yeah like it's just like huh. there's like the whole self-optimization lane yeah. there's the like mood altering lane and then there's like i'm replacing a cocktail lane you know so it's really hard. And some of these things then cross over. And you see that in like the non-alcoholic aperitif category yeah. where it's like it's mood altering. Also, it's a non-alcoholic yeah. spirit. So like I I think we're at a point right now where like there's a lot that's going to need to sort of like mm-hmm. be weeded out. They're trying – like non-alcoholic spirits are trying to find their audience and 
talk to people about what they are. And uh, so it's a bit of a mess. I 100% agree. Well said, Talia. Thank you for pointing that out because it is hard to categorize it as just NA. I mean, is there anything that excites you about, um, I'm not going to say NA, but like a category that is um, despirited and has a maybe related to spirits or it could be related to beer. Like, I don't know. I'm trying. There's a lot, li- there's a lot to like. I think the products are getting better and better all the time. I think like, like a lot of, 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 uh, companies that are spirits makers have tended to be best at this. Interesting. So like St. Agrestis, like the yeah. Phony Negroni, I think is delicious. My number one seed. Just had so one good. last weekend. Yeah. And, um, love it. what I also am really excited about and what, what is working with our audience is like how there's like, there are a lot of there's a lot of geekery now being applied to NA cocktails. There are techniques that you would use in like clarifying your cocktail, for instance, that are being applied yeah. to NA. And I think what that's doing is it's engaging this this sort of geek underbelly of cocktail culture and saying that that drink can be as complex and have as much of a back end as your classic cocktail. And you, it's a project, Absolutely. and that's super fun. The pandemic really, in my observation, really just amplified home cocktail. It just seems yeah. like the geekery has never been stronger. And I don't know if I would have thought that like five years ago. Maybe it was waning a bit. But you're seeing, I mean, you're, you're publishing great recipe stories all the time. Yeah, and like even like we're seeing, you know, Death & Company does this like, this uh, N.A., you know, quote-unquote, Mezcal Negroni, and that's one of our, like, highest-performing reels and TikTok videos. And you see that people are really engaged with, like, really doing, doing, creating a project for themselves uh, for an N.A. cocktail and having the energy to do that because they still, you know, that that might be somebody who spent the time to to make cocktails like that at home and still wants to do that. So I think that's cool. I think, like, it's getting high concept. Punches a TikTok. Shout out to Kay Bray. <laughs> Shout out to Caitlin Bray. Just had to, had to, had to call her out right now. Yeah, for sure. I love We've, it. Uh, that was a long time coming, and and uh, we launched our TikTok about, oh, God, it must have been like a couple months ago now. It's been oh, really cool. fun. Yeah. Oh, I loved. I love that you're, you're in that it's world. fresh. It makes perfect sense for what you do um, with the recipe development side of Punch, but also with the reporting side. It's really cool. I want to talk to you about your cookbook work. I mean, your your career is awesome. Like it's it's just when you start like talking about wow, you do you've done a lot, Tali, and it, I really respect what you've done. And um, you know, spritz, likewise. Oh, thanks. A spritz is 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 a classic. You're well ahead of the curve with aperitivo culture. You did that like ten years ago, fifteen years ago. What is it? E- oh God, uh, that must have been twenty sixteen. That yeah. came out maybe. Well ahead of the curve. I should probably know that. But no. yeah, I mean, now everyone's like, the spritz is dead. <laughs> I know. I, I read that article as well. <laughs> yeah. It had a good run. Had a good run, you know. How about the Negroni? Is it dead? We no, I mean, guy? God, the Negroni. Like, anytime we've been like, it's like a joke at punch. We're like, let's just put Negroni in this headline and it's going to perform. I know. It has nothing to do with the Negroni. It's so great. I mean, yeah, the Game of Thrones stuff was amazing. Um, but I want to talk about pasta. Pasta. What a, what a great, I had a great conversation with your co author, Missy Robbins, and I'll link to that. I, I loved. Uh, that book. It was like a special book. And um, what did you learn traveling <laughs> Italy, uh, going to these regions? Missy has her her answer, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But like, what did you learn traveling Italy and learning about pasta? I mean, it's just like an unknowable subject. And I sort <laughs> of like knew that, obviously. I think like I liken it coming from the wine side to like the unknowability of of wine and, and Italian wine and the story that it can tell. It's like one thing that can be made a bunch of different ways. And each person that makes it makes it a different way. And um, 
I like, you know, I, perhaps naively, like getting into this book, it was like, okay, like we're going to make this book. It's going to be part like Missy's story and her yeah. point of view. And then, and then a reference book. And it's like, what an idiotic, like, <laughs> what an idiotic thing to try to tackle. Meat on top of meat. It was a lot, a lot to, ch- I was like, it was a lot. But off. Yeah. Um, and so I think very quickly, I was so grateful to have Miss, Missy's point of view as a guide in this because like, there is no way, there would have been no other way to sort of narrow this enough to even begin to talk about it. And so like using her story of going from like Italian-American classics in New Haven, Connecticut to understanding regional classics um, for pasta and then having enough information to be able to then go and go home and start cooking your own pasta. Like that felt like a very manageable and logical structure for the book. And thank God we had it because I don't think it would have been doable otherwise. But, you know— all I, it's the same thing with wine. Like the first trip that I made to Italy um, right after college when I was really interested in wine and wanted to learn more, I was like, I'm I'm going to be traveling for this for the rest of my life. And I felt oh. that way about pasta too. I'm going to be going to Italy for the rest of my life to learn about it. Yeah. I mean, I have to ask, I asked Missy this. I mean, is there a, is there a go-to uh, pasta that you're making yourself? Um, are, you, are you are you sick of pasta? I mean, you might be sick no, of it. No, it's impossible to okay. be sick of pasta. All right. Good, 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 good answer. Um, it's like even one dish. Like we talk about this all the time. Even like matriciana. Yeah. Like that is one thing that you could make literally once a week for the rest of your life, and yeah. you would not get bored of it. And like it also depends on you. Sometimes you make it well. Sometimes you don't. And you could do the same exact thing that you did the day before, and it's going to taste different. I have to ask you. We ask many of our cookbook authors. Uh, about their the the very last recipe in the book. Yours is on page three eighty five. I mean that's a long book. Roasted squash with hot honey and breadcrumbs. So let's give the story behind this recipe that probably didn't get as many eyeballs as some of the other recipes. Yeah, I mean, we, from the very beginning, it was really important to Missy to have vegetables in here because, like, really, it was, like, her ideal meal and is, like, really the concept of of the restaurant, Missy, is a great bowl of pasta and a really well-considered vegetable. And, like, that's kind of all you need. Yeah. And that was the the thinking there. I mean, the squash with hot honey and breadcrumbs is, like, basically a meal unto itself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I, I, I think Missy really approaches vegetable cookery with the same sort of rigor that she has with anything else that she's done. And, like, some of these recipes I even remember, like, Lorena, there's one um, sort of a, a zucchini ponzanella dish in the book, more or less. It's not called that. Yeah. But Lorena was like, this recipe is, like, two pages. And <laughs> like, and it's so detailed because it's not hard. It just requires many steps and a lot of technique. So like these, to me, what's great about these vegetable recipes in the book is like there's a ton of technique mm-hmm. in here and there's a lot of learning about how to work with vegetables with the same sort of like yeah. attention that you would protein. Crafting pasta or, or making or pasta. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I honestly, I, I forget the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is the last recipe in the book. So, you know, you might have forgotten it, but. Yeah, but I, I mean, I love that dish. I've eaten that dish yeah. a ton. It's been on on the menus at the restaurants. Definitely. And it is a meal. Like, if yeah. you want to just skip pasta altogether, just go to page yeah. 358 and just make the squash. And hot honey, you know, invented in Brooklyn, love essentially. It. You know, people love it. I love that voice. Yeah. I think it was invented. Yeah, I think it might have been invented in Brooklyn. I mean, right in if you... If you've Mike's Hot it. Honey, is that from... Yeah. Where is that from? Brooklyn, man. Brooklyn? Sounds Absolutely. like it could be Jersey, though. I don't know. Oh, uh, my been Jersey. I thought it was in one of those, like, um, large food production spaces from, like, t- 2006. You know, those, like, big Brooklyn... 
he was one of those companies. I don't know. Maybe, but I mean, the rise of hot honey has been kind of. It's cool. Yep. Do you miss going to Polly G. Slay shop in our old office? I do, um, although I live in Williamsburg. You, do, you live there. And as New York Magazine recently pointed out, yes. this is effectively the, like, this is Mecca for slice yeah. pizza in New York. Sliced pizza? <laughs> pizza by the slice. Pizza by the I slice. I like it. Industry's pretty good, right? I love Lindustry. Yeah. It's Feeny good. Pizza is great. Um, best Pizza is right around the corner from me. I've been a longtime fan. Yeah. You know, Grandma Slice there is great. Um, so I don't, I don't want for pizza. Yeah, pizza's rich in Williamsburg. I love it. <laughs> okay, books are you, we'll get to the final question, but I want to just know cookbooks, is there any future cookbook in your in your, in your your plans? God, I'm not anytime soon. Yeah, taking um, a break. I think, yeah, that that was a bit of a beast in yeah. those three years. And, um, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't have anything that's like in the drink space right now where I'm like dying to kind of yeah. go deep on it. I think like having maybe my weekends back feels yeah. kind of good. <laughs> yeah. Just for a bit. For a bit. Yeah. Enjoy your weekends. Yeah. Book deadlines are fun. Book deadlines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, I it, whatever I do next, I think that there it, it might be something that like is a little bit left field, maybe something. I mean, I've, it's always been the way in which I've I've been lucky enough to learn. Yeah. So it's like a topic that I might not know a lot about and I use the book to to figure it out and, and tried to write with that kind of point of view as well. Like yeah. Sherry was a topic where I was like, there's no way I, this is so huge mm-hmm. and, and difficult and, um, technical. And I sort of just went at that. I'm like, I really like this and I want to learn more. And, and so I, I feel like I have more confidence to be able to p- perhaps tackle a topic that's outside of food outside or of food or drink. Well, maybe we'll see that, but I want to ask you, Talia, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world. Talia, what would that be? Oh, my God. I mean, it would probably be like a comprehensive book on Italian drinks. And I don't mean just like low-key. I Mm. mean like wine, beer, spirits, cocktails, like a true sort of magnum opus on Italian drinking and Italian drinking culture. I would – but that would be a years-long project and something that will never happen. Okay. But (laughs) – Great, great caveats. Yeah. But I would love to do that. I've also like always been fascinated with with alpine drinking culture and and eating culture and I love that part of Italy – um, and that would be supremely fun and also mm. include skiing, which is a nice bonus. Talia Baioki, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.